Welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every episode, starting in 1895, the dawn of cinema. Uh, but this week, we're talking about 1927, 30-plus years later. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Ellie, and joining me as always is... I'm Glenn Covell. I am a filmmaker. Did I mess that up? I think you were split I... to say film projectionist, but uh... it's fine. Just keep going, keep going. Keep well, it in, you gotta keep, keep going? Okay, fine, fine. And so we're uh, we're a movie history podcast. We're talking about uh, every year of film history in order, and we're talking about this year. We're talking about the big silent film year, nineteen twenty seven, baby. What do you think about that, Glenn? Uh, yes, one of the great movie years. It's exciting. Along with nineteen eighty two and twenty fourteen and nineteen ninety nine, and maybe some others. Maybe being the best one. <laughs> uh. If you all are watching on YouTube, uh, this may be the last episode uh, <laughs> that has uh, the movies running alongside, uh, yeah. because this is the last year that we're going to be talking about that is in the public domain. When we get to 2024, then 1928 will enter the public domain, but we're not there yet. Uh, so enjoy it while you can. If you're like, what? If I can't watch along, then what's the point? Well, you know, we're going to try and make it okay for you in the future we'll figure Visually out interesting it, on the podcast uh because of youtube music restrictions on the podcast we throw in a little uh little intro a little fun intro and closer um, kind of a joke usually uh song uh and that's that's what you'll get if you listen to the podcast version also then you can you can know you can listen to it on the train on, on the, the train, car in the car on a run whatever you run, happen to be doing any mode of transport uh, but yeah. not standing still. Not okay. And yeah, if you're listening to it on a podcast uh, and you thought you felt like you were missing out, you won't be missing out too much longer because we uh, are running out of copyright-free material. <laughs> there you uh, go. Anyway, Glenn, how, how's it going? How are you doing? Uh, it's going good. Um, it's very uh, humid here in New York City today. Mm. Um, New York. It's very, it's very sweaty. You know, I got my tiki shirt on, so... It's, that uh, helps you I'm, feel I'm, immersed. Yeah, I'm I'm dealing with it uh, in my own way. <laughs> like I should have said in the intro, uh, I'm a film projectionist, so I'm gearing up for the 35 millimeter run of Oppenheimer in a month. And uh, I guess another thing that I've been doing is, uh, well, I'm in I'm in Denver, Colorado, different city in the United States of America, and uh, we have a venue called Red Rocks, uh, which people travel very far to see shows at. Uh, and uh, the group, the, the organization that I'm with, Denver Film, we run Film on the Rocks. So we just did uh, Black Panther and Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then Jaws is up next. Nice. So it's going to be a big outdoor auditorium, many people watching movie on big screen. That's great. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. It's a fun time. I can if you fly to Denver, I can get you backstage. Yeah. You, Glad, not any listeners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess, as on the filmmaking front, I'm in the very early stages. I probably shouldn't talk about it in in a public venue like this because it'll jinx something. But I'm I'm planning on doing uh, a, a little short silent comedy uh, in the next month or t- or so. Because um, I've been watching all these things, and I, you know, I feel left out. I want to do one. <laughs> do something with it yeah it really was like the the youtube era you know uh 
like a, you, the Time Magazine 2006 Person of the Year being you with the reflection on, yeah. on the cover uh, because because you could upload videos online. Just back then, anybody could just grab a camera and start making their own comedy say, Anyone could just grab a very expensive 35mm camera, buy some foam stock, there and no develop it. To entry. And... There was no racism. <laughs> uh, speaking of racism, what else happened in 1927? Uh, why don't you give us a little context, Glenn, with the news of the year? Okay. The news of the year, 1927. Hello and cheerio. The first transatlantic telephone call is made via radio from New York to London. The U.S. Marines invade Nicaragua. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is founded by Louis B. Mayer as a union-busting scheme. German physicist Werner Heisenberg publishes his paper on the uncertainty principle. Pan American Airways is founded. The first image is transmitted via television. The 22-year Chinese Civil War begins with the Shanghai Massacre. The Irish Free State is recognized as separate from the United Kingdom. Aviator Charles Lindbergh makes the first solo, non-stop, transatlantic flight in his plane, the Spirit of St. Louis. The Food, Drug, and Insecticide Administration is established. The League of Nations Slavery Commission signs a treaty to abolish all forms of slavery. Sculpture carving begins on the illegally procured land of Mount Rushmore. Ford Motor Company unveils its newest automobile, the Ford Model A. Those are a bunch of things that happened in 1927. Yeah. What else happened? Uh, some movies, movies came out. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about those. Because there's a lot of them. Well, why don't we start out with the, the little baby short movies. Yeah. Uh, In our we, segment. As we try to do. One week, one reel. Let's start out with uh, an animated short. Yeah. By uh, a fella you may have heard of. You may have heard of him. Uh, you may have heard of uh, Walt Disney. The uh, the original Disney adult. <laughs> uh, correct. Um, and uh, today we're talking about Trolley Troubles, which is the first appearance of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Yes. Yep. Sort of the predecessor to uh, Mickey Mouse, who uh, won't appear for another year. Considering that, like... I don't know, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit has this reputation as the original Disney mascot before before Mickey. I, I was kind of surprised that it was only a year before mm. Steamboat yeah. Willie. Uh, and and also just like seeing him in his initial form factor, um, how similar he looks to Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Uh, he's yeah. just kind of like a, like a plumper Mickey with a rabbit tail and longer ears. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's almost more of a, a sort of uh, a prototype Mickey Mouse, like yeah, refining the design down from rabbit to mouse. Yeah, I mean, this is I feel like a very like quintessentially nineteen twenties looking cartoon. Yeah, a lot for of sure. a lot of squat squash and stretch, right? Is the correct terminology? Yeah, although honestly, not as much as I would have expected. No, you think the trolley morphing to the shape of the tracks wasn't squashy enough for you so so it is okay it is very squash and stretchy i'm not trying to get like pedantic or whatever <laughs> but um i guess you know could it's have been, been a- squashier <laughs> <laughs> it's been a couple of years since we've checked in on disney animation and the last time we were looking at it 
I think it was still kind of retaining this like early Fleischer, early Disney kind of choppy look to it. Mm-hmm. It's very low frame rate animation. And it's interesting the way that it's kind of becoming more lush and lavish animation where mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the kind of meat and potatoes stuff is very herky-jerky. But then in moments where they need to be really cartoony, they are starting to do some like much more squashy and stretchy cartoon yeah. things. It's just not like consistently that way, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. It's, this stuff felt more refined than the other Disney animations that we've seen. Definitely, yeah. And there's some pretty, there's some like cool stuff with perspective going on, I thought. Yeah. You know, we saw in the Cinderella that uh, shot of the dog or whatever, the guy like throwing newspapers uh, like uh, right. at houses along yeah. the street. And it was this really neat kind of uh, single point perspective shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've got some similar kind of like head on shots of things moving at the camera uh, that create like really dynamic looks. So, yeah. Yeah. As far as what happens in this cartoon, I don't know. There's a trolley. It, it gets into troubles. <laughs> there's a cow on the tracks. The tracks go all weird, you know, ways. The cow's wearing glasses. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's a bunch of silly stuff happens on a trolley. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's silly stuff. I mean, you know, a lot of the comedy here back way back when is pretty gag-based. And I think yeah. that... Um, one thing that's kind of neat about this is that it is starting to do some kind of really unreal gags that could only happen in a cartoon, mm-hmm. even though, you know, we, we saw some train based comedy last, <laughs> last episode. Right. Uh, and, but this one's got like, you know, the, the trolley lifting its leg up to uh, yeah. go over a bump in the, in the rails yeah. or stretching out really wide to accommodate the, the width of the rails. It's, it's fun. It's good yeah. fun. I also like, you know, talking about animation principles, like uh, this kind of like wind up uh, and and mm-hmm. uh, I forget the actual terminology for it. But yeah. there's a point where the, the trolley is trying to crash through the cow. Uh, and so it kind of backs up and it kind of like winds up like yeah. you were a person <laughs> trying to run forward and then it slams into the cow and the cow doesn't move at all. And I thought that, that was like well done. It like... It, mm-hmm really showed the um i don't know the sense of motion really yeah. well and that kind of thing's difficult to do i think that i think struck me about uh the cinderella that we watched and also this is this is kind of true for i think a lot of like 20s animation that i've seen but like i guess it's somewhat ironic watching these really early disney cartoons and how kind of mean-spirited they can be <laughs> a lot of people getting bonked and hit and like you know, a lot of, like, cartoon violence, I guess. It's but a classic cartoon, baby. Something about it is just, like, feels odd, oddly mean-spirited for, like, a Disney thing, I guess. But, hey, he hadn't figured out, you know, the magic of, of uh, whatever. A blandness. His brand. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of figuring out brands, should we move on to our next short? You got all these segues figured out. All right, let's do it. Yes. <laughs> All right, so the next short we're going to talk about is Putting Pants on Philip, which is... This is about, kind of it's art. about putting pants on Philip. Yes, it is exactly what it says on the tin. This is, I guess, considered to be the first official uh, Laurel and Hardy short of them build as a team of Laurel and Hardy 
and they'd been making movies together for years at this point but this is like the first one that is like no they're a thing now and i had never seen any laurel and hardy before this yeah me either um not off to a great start i assume they get better <laughs> uh because of how famous and well liked they are um it's fine this, i don't know it, i i was not particularly impressed by this film <laughs> it's two glorious reels of terrible kilt jokes and not much else uh it is mainly kilt based comedy i will yeah. say speaking of kind of cartoony imagery i feel like this goes for something more some some kind of more cartoony gags than you might find in some other silent slapstick people i'm thinking specifically of um there's a point where uh oh what's his name in these pants uh philip philip uh takes some stuff out of a snuff box uh, right and sniffs it and then and then it makes him sneeze and it makes his boxers fly off (laughs) (laughs) which Which i laughed at that joke yeah yeah it's good (laughs) there there, some good jokes make their way in you know it's going for like joke every second and naturally a few of them land yeah i mean this would have this could have been much tighter definitely if this were one reeler i i feel like this could be a lot better probably but when his boxers fly off that ups the ante because his uh his kilt has kept flying up right uh, he's he's doing the the sort of marilyn monroe thing of walking over some air vents turns out lauren hardy invented it yeah i mean they probably didn't even invent it it probably was a gag long before this yeah this short was directed by clyde bruckman who uh was kind of an interesting guy i guess uh he co-directed the general the um buster keaton movie which mm. we talked about last episode because it premiered in 1926 but it didn't actually it wasn't actually like released in theaters until 1927 but clyde bruckman worked with like a lot of the best like best known early comedy people of like buster keaton harold lloyd laurel and hardy three stooges um he was like a big early comedy director but uh in 1955 during a career slump he borrowed a gun from Buster Keaton and shot himself in his car, which is a hell of a way to go out. Good lord. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know why I brought that up. It was just a, a crazy story. Also, there's an X-Files episode named after him. What? Yeah. Why? Cly- Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, I think, which is considered one of the best episodes of X-Files. It's um, about him? It's not about him. It's just the lead character is named Clyde Bruckman after him. Um, but I think it has nothing I think, to do with it. I don't think so. I don't remember it that well. It's a good episode, well, though. Hmm. Okay. Anyway, anything else to say about this one? Um. So I don't know if um, you know, since we haven't seen any other Laurel and Hardy before, if this is consistently the thing. But it's. Uh, I think it's um, maybe an uncommon situation for the the skinny guy to be the the zany one and the the fat guy True. to be the straight man yeah uh, i don't know if that remains or not i'm just assuming that that like comedy pairing started in vaudeville because that's where all comedy things started seemingly <laughs> right that is a good point like that is uh i certainly think of that trope i guess as yeah sort of the the skinny guy being like the straight man and the bigger guy being the the goofy one and this is definitely the opposite of that 
I guess the other the other thing to note about this movie is that there's a lot of mugging to the camera in it, which mm. I feel like is a bit out of fashion uh, with a lot of... The, I get the sense that it's more out of fashion these yeah. days. I do feel like that was more of a thing in like the 1910s. I feel like mm-hmm. in the 20s, we've moved past that. We can, we can just <laughs> have normal performances and like funny faces can be made in... Uh, a proper context rather than just sort of like oh what's going on over here funny faces must be made in humorous phases Uh, (laughs) all right two shorts that's it now let's move on to our feature presentation and now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation laurel and hardy made their short right putting pants on philip not their first short they did together, but the first mm-hmm. one that people like acknowledge as this is like their thing. An, a feature that kind of along the same lines by a very famous director uh, who you may have heard of. Mm. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Heard of him? Ever heard of Alfred Hitchcock? He you had... gotta see Psycho. Yeah. It's a great movie. So he had made, uh, so we're talking about The Lodger or The Lodger, A Story of the London Fog, mm-hmm. which is his third movie, but the first one that anyone talks or cares about, <laughs> including Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, I think one of them is Lost, uh, one of the first two, and then the other one, uh, yeah, it's just not not super him, I guess he thought. Yeah, I think the first two were both kind of like very kind of straightforward British dramas, silent dramas. This one feels very Hitchcock. Yes, it does. It is. So the the first image of this film, the first like filmed photographed image is a blonde woman screaming, which is like the most <laughs> the most Alfred Hitchcock thing a movie can have in it. True. True. So like right off the bat, he was like, this is my whole deal. <laughs> yeah. This story is a kind of riff on Jack the Ripper. Which I thought it was about Jack the Ripper. It's not. It's just no. a sort of loosely inspired by Jack the Ripper story. Only 40 only forty years afterward. Yeah. 40 years after this, he was making, I don't know, the birds. Yeah. Uh, so his his working career kind of, it's, you, you think of Jack the Ripper as something that happened in the distant, untouchable past. But, mm-hmm. like, Alfred Hitchcock, who lived until 1980, I think, you know, was born shortly after Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Ripped from the headlines of 40 years ago. Yeah. Uh, there's a joke to be made, but I those serial killer shows that come out now, it's one of those. It's a real mind hunter. <laughs> there you go. No, but mind hunter <laughs> is a good one, so I don't, I don't want to throw that one under the bus. What other serial killer shows are there? Oh, there's all the like Jeffrey Dahmer shows and the oh, all, yeah, all those. Whatever. It's one of the infinitely replaceable many Jeffrey Dahmer shows. Yeah, exactly. It's the 1927 equivalent of the. I mean, it is like those actually because it's about how sexy this serial killer is. I mean, kind of. Well, we'll get this movie has a twist in it that I guess we're gonna spoil because it's a very old movie and you really should have seen it by now. <laughs> I, I don't know like that, that brings up a question of like how spoily we should get for like no, i don't know at this point because you know these are classic movies but they're classic movies that nobody's watched you know i mean i didn't know the twist of this movie and i i, I greatly enjoyed 
seeing it pretty blind. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess if you're listening to this, you've never seen The Lodger. Just stop the podcast, go watch The Lodger, then come back. You know, or skip uh, ahead like 20 minutes. I don't know. Don't listen to this podcast unless you can watch six movies every time you, <laughs> you listen to the podcast. All right, like we do. We don't want you unless you're really participating. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, well, I think I think we should talk about the twist of this movie because it's, it's yes. a pretty significant part of yes. the story. Um, we talk spoilers in the show. Yeah, deal with it. Hmm. Going backwards a bit, I there does feel like this movie feels very quintessentially hitchcockian i guess yes which is cool Uh, because it's his first thriller movie and he's already kind of setting setting a tone setting a pace setting a sort of a sort of style for himself that uh continues yeah i mean speaking of style not just in terms of what he put in the movie and the way he made it but even the intertitles mm-hmm. feel like they have a lot in common with the Saul Bass uh opening credits that yeah. Uh, yeah. he has in his later movies uh the kind of visual stylings i uh i was i i looked up what you would call them from like a art graphic design perspective what school they're a part of and then forgot Oh, but great. it feels it feels very in line with that other stuff. I did think, yeah, it's like Albert Hitchcock clearly has a a love of kind of graphic design. Graphic design is his passion. Um, uh, though apparently the graphic design stuff was added uh, for the for the intertitles was added pretty late in the process. Hmm. Uh, he um, the movie had some pretty big edits made to it, but like after it was. Uh, after it was initially cut together and the studio executives didn't like it uh in the end like they didn't change too much about like the meat of the movie but there were a lot of like small tweaks made and part of those tweaks were hiring somebody uh like a graphic designer to make those uh those intertitles which was not initially part of hitchcock's vision oh okay so maybe that's where he that's the founding of his love of cool graphics He's like, some guy just hired this guy, yeah. uh, but I like him, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Let's keep that going. I think the, especially the opening titles, but a lot of the intertitles throughout feel very German Expressionist influenced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I mean, I can definitely see a lot of German Expressionist influence throughout this whole movie, just through the lighting and the, the, oh yeah, the, the entire kind of visual it style. It feels like it could have been made by a yeah. German. Yeah. So I, I don't know if I ever found any confirmation that hitchcock had ever like said that he like watched a bunch of renown movies or watched caligari or something like that but um i'm sure he yeah did. man i can't remember it might have like something that i read seemed to indicate that he said that he was inspired by murnau and lang mm. but uh I, it wasn't i don't think it was a direct quote so i'm right. not sure it would make a lot of sense because you yeah. can definitely see it in the visuals yeah and so yeah like you were talking about with the opening credits it does this kind of neat animation of this really really cool looking like chunky graphic of the lodger um who is a tall man who wears a scarf over the bottom half of his face and a fedora type situation he looks like the shadow he looks like the shadow except uh he has a nose <laughs> uh, and yeah it does this kind of cool like animation revealing it uh, mm-hmm. and 
there's a lot of neat uh, kind of angular shapes in the design of it and in the title cards themselves. Uh, the serial killer, who is known as the Avenger, uh, is leaving a calling card on every victim, and it is a triangle with his name in it that says the Avenger. And so the intertitles uh, have... Uh, some uh, some of the intertitles have triangles in them. Yeah. Uh, particularly on our leading lady uh, that has triangles next to her name. I feel like kind of threatening that she might be the next mm. kill, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. The leading lady, Daisy, uh, very blonde, uh, as is Hitchcock's way. <laughs> they, um, they even like call attention to it in this movie. It's like blondes getting murdered. Yeah. Yeah. Every everyone is a blonde getting murdered on a Tuesday. Yeah, another sort of very Hitchcock thing is sort of giving like the audience more information than the characters have. Hmm. So it's like right away, it's sort of like, oh, Daisy is gonna, someone's gonna try to murder her. Like we wouldn't be following this character otherwise. And so, basically, every scene that she's in, there's this underlying thing of like, oh, is she gonna get murdered right here? I hope not. Right, so Daisy is living in London during this this uh, spate of, of murders. She lives in a, an apartment building with her parents, who are the, the land landlord and landlady. And then she has, a, I guess, kind of a boyfriend who's a police detective. Yeah, it's like kind of a boyfriend, but she doesn't like him very much. And she probably doesn't really consider him to be her boyfriend. Right, yeah. He's talking about marrying her, but he's like, oh, cool it, buddy. Yeah, she keeps, like, pushing him away every time yeah. she gets near, yeah. he gets near um, her. And then uh, uh, a lodger shows up to rent a room in their apartment building. And uh, he's got a, a big hat and a scarf over his face. Yeah, right before we're introduced to him, there's a witness to one of the murders saying that uh, the murderer ha- is tall and he has a he has a scarf that covers half his face and then lo and behold a lodger appears tall with a scarf over his face nobody's like that yeah um and so he shows up and is immediately just a very suspicious gentleman <laughs> doing a bunch of weird shit uh he rents the room and he pays uh a month in advance he turns all the pictures around so he doesn't have to look at them. Not all the pictures, though. Like, the pictures that involve, like, ladies. Yes. Um, which is most of the pictures in the apartment. Um, and uh, everyone's kind of like, who's who's this weirdo? And he's he's yeah. pacing around in his room, and there's a really cool shot of them in the, the downstairs, the ground level, looking up at his room, the ceiling. And it's kind of, it fades into a transparent ceiling. And you see him, like, walking across the floor. Um, Which I looked up and they did uh, shoot on a pane of glass of him walking across. Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah. Never seen that before. Um, That sounded sarcastic. I genuinely mean that. Like, I don't know if anyone had done this, done that up until this point. (laughs) Um, And uh, it is here where I... I don't want to give away the ending immediately. Maybe I just should. I, I wrote down, because I was thinking this, what if this guy is just a really huge weirdo and is not a serial killer at all? <laughs> but so then 
there's this scene of like a horny chess game where the lodger and Daisy are playing chess and making eyes at each other. And yeah. uh, the lodger, I I think he might have a name in the. Um, it's based on a play. Uh, I think he has a name in that, but I believe in this he's only credited as the lodger. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uh, Daisy's like reaching over to pick up a chess piece, and he grabs the fire poker, and you're like, oh, he's gonna do a thing with a fire poker, and then it's like we cut away, and then we cut back, and he's poking the fire. Um, they do that a couple times, <laughs> which feels like a very Hitchcock thing, right? Like setting this expectation in the audience where they're like, "Oh, what's gonna happen?" And then, all uh, right, it's the bomb that doesn't explode under the table, right? Yeah, it's. I I thought it was a little much. Uh, <laughs> sure, uh, I, uh, especially looking at it from a modern perspective. But I think it's it's still like good use of like editing and expectation and sort of it's it's uh yeah the, i appreciate the craft behind it even if now it seems a bit yeah a little over the top maybe and then there's yeah i mean i don't know how much detail we need to go into but there's all of this kind of like insinuation that the lodger is very definitely the killer yeah uh, they're really laying it on very thick it's like this guy's definitely the murderer like it look at how obvious it is here we go here we can dis- discuss the end i guess but like uh and we already told you there's a twist in this movie so we're basically setting up what the twist is here but uh it turns out that he is not uh and that he has just been tracking the killer the entire time yeah, because his sister was murdered i think was the first victim of the killer right um and so he has been tracking all the all the deaths and he's been trying to track down because it was not only was his sister murdered but then his mother died of grief basically so he's like lost several yeah exactly uh a broken heart killed her um he's lost several family members to this murderer already um and so he is sort of going around town uh this bit where they find a map where he's marked where all the murders have taken place and they're like oh see you're marking all your murders here if you look like a murderer and act like a weirdo and have a map of all of the murder locations of an active serial killer not a good look my shouldn't be doing one of my favorite things about this movie is that there aren't really a lot of explanations for his like super suspicious behavior he's just a weirdo he's just a (laughs) huge weirdo and i i do kind of love that at the end where it's like no like he wasn't a killer at all he's just he's just a weird dude it turns out that daisy's into weirdos though yes because uh the the the, partially out of jealousy partially out of genuine suspicion uh her cop kind of boyfriend is sort of after the lodger uh he ends up putting him in handcuffs uh and the lodger gets away um and it is then as they're kind of chasing after him is revealed like oh by the way we just caught the killer like on the other side of town over here it's not him yeah um the killer who has never shown or explained like we never find out who the real killer was yeah which is interesting that's cool i think i mean i i would have done something different with it but we'll talk about that at the end oh so you think you're better than hitchcock i'm just saying in (laughs) hindsight i think this movie could have been more subversive and more interesting yeah, and and I think Hitchcock wanted it to be like he hmm. wanted to have it be ambiguous whether the killer right. was the lodger or not. 
uh, and the studio stepped in and told him that uh, that you can't have a movie star be a bad guy, uh, uh, which is what uh, right. I, I listened to a bit of a conversation between him and Truffaut about this movie. Oh, interesting. And uh, and he was like, yeah, like I wanted to make it more ambiguous, but mm-hmm. like you can't. That everyone was like, oh, he's a movie star. You can't make him the villain. Basically, I did like how he is revealed to be like an out and out good guy at the end but yeah, he's, he's still a, a weirdo <laughs> it doesn't explain away any of his just crazy behavior this entire movie <laughs> although i i le- i think it's kind of funny how at the end he seems a much more kind of like conventionally like handsome like heroic guy he's just showing up in a tux like he's not he's not wearing a cloak anymore he's right. not like doing like weird shit with his hands it's just like oh no he's just normal dude now this is, and this is I wish they kept. Movies, yeah. I wish they'd kept his all his weird quirks in that last scene. Movies will do this sometimes, where it's like somebody's weird and they're acting weird, but then the the second that you find out that they're not acting weird, they start acting less weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which is probably just bad writing. <laughs> My hot take in this movie is: I think that the the detective boyfriend should have been the killer the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I will say I was suspecting a twist the entire time. Well, because also... And and make probably that as the twist. Early on in the movie, there's a intertitle where he's speaking and he says, like, it's like, oh, this killer and me, we're, we're, we have something in common. Like, we both, we're both into blondes or something like that, which is, like, a super creepy thing to say to your blonde girlfriend. <laughs> maybe girlfriend, maybe not, whatever. And then maybe about halfway through the movie when I was starting to suspect that the lodger maybe wasn't the killer, I was like, maybe it is the detective. That would be a really cool, interesting, subversive way to end this movie. And it, I was half right. So See, that was the thing was that like they were laying on all of that, like, is he going to stab her stuff so thick that it made me really suspect that it made me think that like it would be kind of boring if he ended up being the killer. And right. so... Yeah. I was assuming that he wasn't, but I kind of assumed that it would go somewhere a little more interesting with the fact mm-hmm. that he wasn't. There's there's almost a thing with movies that are this old where you're like, yeah, it would be like kind of a boring thing if he was just the killer the whole time. I'm like, yeah, this is an old movie. Maybe they just hadn't figured it out yet. <laughs> I've definitely fallen to that trap before. I was trying not to think about it because I was like, I can't put my expectations on this, you know? Right, yeah. I thought about that also where I was... I thought this movie clearly seems to be setting up. It's laying it on so thick that he's the killer. That's making me think that he probably isn't, but also maybe Hitchcock just hadn't worked out his, you know, his style yet. And he's just going way too hard. on look at how creepy this guy is. I was very happy to see at the end that he, uh, he clearly knew what he was doing in that regard. There's a, a real kind of assurance in the direction of this. It feels like he really kind of knows what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, which is cool to see. Yeah. It's uh, Hitchcock was one of the original people that the uh, Cahiers du Cinema were like obsessed with as an auteur, mm-hmm. and yeah. um, and you could see it this soon as you know he he that's his style he's yeah. it's developed yeah. you know so this is even Hitchcock himself has said like this is his first real movie this is where uh, kind of his whole oeuvre starts and like all of his movies are named like this too the lodger the birds. The Psycho. The Rear Window. The Rear Window. (laughs) Oh, boy. The North by Northwest. Anyway, so this movie is about London, partially. 
London is sort of a big part of it. The the it really kind of embraces the setting and the fog and the architecture. Another movie that loves architecture. Uh-huh. Berlin Symphony of a Great City. Yeah. I've heard you know they they showed so much of Berlin but they didn't show the 24-hour nightclubs and that's all I hear <laughs> about with Berlin these days. Well, I got some uh some good news and some bad news about uh maybe how different the Berlin in this movie looks from contemporary Berlin, mm-hmm. which is that most of the buildings you see in this movie got blown up real good uh in World War 2. So The Allies. This is uh, a non-narrative sort of documentary film mm-hmm. uh, directed by Walter Ruttman. Who we've seen before. Yeah, doing animation. Yeah. Um, And this is him doing photography or, you know, film. Um, There's a little bit of animation sprinkled throughout, or at least at the very beginning, there's a bit of like yeah, a kinda. transition thing. But it's mostly just shots of the people, places, and things of Berlin. Uh, yeah. And it is a, a pretty cool like time capsule of this very brief period of time in in Germany. The, 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 Weimar, the Germany. Weimar Republic. Where it was like... Cool, some cool things happened during this time. Which uh, it weren't happening so much like a decade previous or the decade after this. Uh, so it's cool to see it like captured in this in this way yeah a good a good 10 years for germany uh (laughs) in between the two world wars which were bad yeah pretty Um, bad hot take i i thought this was interesting in relation to uh opus his Mm -hmm. other movies um because those movies were uh all about like shape and form they're really Mm -hmm. abstract animation so it was it was playing with these kind of like modernist ideas of, you know, I don't know, art words. It was, it was this like very modernist kind of like, look at these shapes and the kind of beauty that they create with their light and shadow and color, uh, which you can in a way see in German expressionism with like the light and shadow. Mm -hmm. But I feel like this movie is applying the kind of mindset of his animation to city photography um, where it's trying to create this isn't all of what the movie is doing but especially in the beginning i feel like it's creating a lot of really interesting shapes with uh the pre everybody waking up berlin so mm. you're looking through like these industrial triangles and yeah. buildings that are at kind of strange angles and all this stuff uh it reminded me a lot of manhattan as right. well yeah it definitely feels like it is a kind of taking what Manhattan was doing and and running with it a bit, mm-hmm. a bit more. I mean, it's longer, too. It's a feature. Two things this reminded me of on either end of it, I guess, are, like, the really early actuality movies mm. from, like, the 1890s mm-hmm. of just sort of, like, here is a street. Look at the people. Like, it's not... Here's a church. Here's a steeple. <laughs> Open the doors. Exactly. <laughs> so it has, it has some of... It, it's got a lot more going on with it with through the editing and through the composition and all that stuff but and the other thing it really reminded me of is the uh the katsi trilogy of movies um from like the 80s and 90s those uh yeah. like koreana skatsi and i forgot what the other ones are called those feel very reminiscent of this like i'm sure that 
this feels like a, a definite kind of like uh precedent for those movies i guess mm-hmm. although those, those movies are more like kind of critical and less uh um venerating right the, the uh, movies I, they're like i guess I, yeah i haven't seen them but like I, I i get the sense they're like about i don't know economic or not uh ecological collapse and stuff and what have we wrought right yeah no it, it is a bit more <laughs> of that i think whereas yeah i think this movie is definitely intended to be like look at this great city pretty cool huh yeah <laughs> um even though i think one i think due to the score the score i watched it with was written in 1993 so post koyana scotsi and i think it feels a bit philip glass inspired oh, um it huh. wasn't by philip glass it was by a guy named timothy brock but I, oh, I wonder I, if Philip Glass has done any silent scores. That'd be interesting. Uh, I hope so. But so the the score at times I think gets a little ominous in a way that maybe is not like there's a whole milk bottling scene early on that has like very intense ominous music over it. Mm-hmm. That I was like, I don't know why this milk bottling is so ominous. That aspect of the score and also just hindsight I think makes gives this movie a bit of this air of like. It, it kind of retroactively takes on a sense of like impending doom a bit <laughs> yeah and there are like uh some scenes of like chaos uh mm-hmm. and and uh uh i don't know discord yeah uh, it's not all revelatory it's all it's uh revel- is that the right word yeah it's, uh it's it does have some kind of like yeah cities have some violence in them sometimes you know yeah there's like a uh, fight between two guys on the street, which I think is probably staged because it's covered by two different cameras. Mm-hmm. It also just kind of looks staged. There's also a scene that is definitely staged of a woman jumping off a bridge, and there's like a cool like punch in on her eyeballs, getting all bulgy and big in a like very yeah. George Millery way. <laughs> Those are, I think probably the two most like overtly, I guess I can negative things where it's like, hey, life can be rough sometimes. So not all peaches and roses in Berlin. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but it is, it's sort of, the whole movie is like a day in the life, right? It starts in the early morning, goes to the evening, and we see all different aspects of industry and work and people traveling and nightlife. And, you know, there's like sort of like all the neon, or not neon signs, but all like the lights turning on. There may be neon. It was invented. Oh, well, sure. A lot of, you know rain slick streets lit by headlights yeah a lot of, a lot of really cool imagery for sure yeah i mean i i, I think that um this feels i mean I, I think the actuality influence is is interesting but this also feels in line with uh some russian stuff mm-hmm. uh the editing as, especially feels yeah like you said post kino eye post kino i post vertov i mean it, it feels like if this were uh if this were very communisty it could have been kino i you know right yeah uh, it shares some kind of uh f- formal attributes with it one of the things that popped out to me so much watching uh potemkin is just like the focus on beautiful compositions mm-hmm. and i think that that's a lot of what this movie is. There's no narrative to speak of. Yeah. It's just pretty shots of things happening in a city. Uh, right. I I thought watching this, like, this is the kind of thing that I I make when I'm on vacation. 
is I just like film a bunch of stuff that I think looks cool and then I edit it together and like try to find some kind of like rhythm or like thematic thing to take me through it. See, there wasn't there was a canonic a canonical score written for this movie, mm. but what it should be is that song Vacation on Level One. I gotta I gotta I, rewatch it with that song over it now, and, just on repeat and I, for ninety minutes. <laughs> and you just you just do like an iMovie intro. My oh. trip to Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, since this is public domain, I kind of want to upload that. I think that would be really fun. You should upload it as if it's like actual, like it's like, it, like it's an actual vacation video, and it's just the yeah. entire Berlin Symphony yeah. of the City. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, oh boy um uh, another just quick thing to note that i found very interesting in the sort of time capsule way is that there's some footage of the terrifying old german elevators that are just in a perpetual state of moving up and down oh yeah um did you those... notice those yeah we i don't remember if it was a movie from this episode or last episode that featured those elevators as well um yeah it it is a very specific and interesting type of elevator. It's that called I the uh, Paternoster nice. elevator. Oh yeah, they were in Metropolis too. I think. Um, I think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just a, a a relic of the 1920s that is just an interesting thing. There are some that are still functioning, and I want to get on them. Yeah, they look very scary. Um, <laughs> I think the first time. Well, maybe some of the old movies have them that i'd seen before but like the show babylon berlin which takes place i think the first season takes place in 1929 uh has a bunch of scenes with the these elevators in them and i was like what what are the how are these allowed and they're usually not anymore so <laughs> oh yeah it's definitely very anti-osha um yeah uh but anyway speaking of uh big german cities and also the movie we just mentioned a second ago metropolis uh, I ruined your I ruined your seg. No, it's fine. <laughs> uh yeah, Metropolis. Maybe the big daddy of this entire decade. Yup. I is... mean what a what a picture. Yeah. Uh this movie is great. Yep. I think we both watched it twice for this episode. <laughs> I didn't actually get the chance to watch it again, but oh, okay. I I want to. I will uh i've seen it many times before and i love yeah it. i think this was probably my or i watched it twice and i think that was probably my, like my third and fourth or fourth and fifth watches of it like i'd seen it mm. a few times mm-hmm. before um i think i'd seen it when i was like a teenager and then again in college um because yeah everyone loves talking about this movie because it's super famous and it's good hot take metropolis really cool. good movie uh <laughs> yeah yeah it's almost like what what do we even say about it? it's like there's so much there's so much to say about metropolis kind of that it's like where where to start uh what was your first experience with metropolis um i think it was renting it from the library on dvd mm. um and watching i don't know if it was part of any sort of like because i had a sort of organized film class as part of my my homeschool uh, uh, syllabus, <laughs> um, that covered a lot of uh, a lot of kind of classic movies. I don't think that was one of them, though. I think I, I think I just heard about it from like as I was getting interested in in filmmaking and film history and things like that. I 
it was just so ubiquitous kind of in like books about it that i mean like, i gotta I've, watch i gotta watch this metropolis thing i've watched it when i was 16 probably renting it from the library it's very possible that we watched it at the same time together a long the, yeah, time ago <laughs> maybe i it's been long enough where yeah, i'm not sure and yeah i um this is probably the first silent movie that i that i saw maybe um is that be uh, one of the first i'd seen i think um, i maybe saw some chaplain shorts with a live piano when i was like a little kid um hmm. but I, I remember, I don't know, it being kind of like thinking I was hot shit as a 16-year-old for um, thinking that Metropolis was good. Like, ah, I'm a big film guy. Yeah, I've seen uh, Metropolis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this is probably a lot of people's first exposure to silent film. Just or because only. Yeah. Um, I mean, it gets, I was lucky enough to see it on 35mm film in the past week because it was playing at the Metrograph. Um, even though it was a a less complete restoration. They should have turned it into the Metropolis so graph. Oh. Um uh, I think it was the it was the two thousand two era restoration, which is not as complete as the more recent one. Mm-hmm. Um so I watched it again because I wanted to see all the extra scenes that were rediscovered uh in the interim. But uh yeah, this is like one of the most like iconic influential movies ever made, probably. Yeah. Not probably, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I I started like a count of like how many things I recognized from other stuff that are like <laughs> just straight up pulled from this movie. Like not influenced are just like directly referencing or just like pulling stuff from this movie. I I, I had to stop because I'm like it's there's too many. But it's Can you like list off a few. I I'll, I'll list off a few. Star Wars, Blade Runner, The Fifth Element, Ex Machina, Poor Things, Brazil, The Terminator. Hudsucker Proxy, Army of Darkness, Frankenstein, oh uh, Final Fantasy VII, 1989, Batman, <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, Andor, the TV show, and uh, Bioshock. So I, throwing I, video games in there, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although there is a Final Fantasy VII movie, which we will cover. <laughs> <laughs> the Frankenstein thing I thought was really interesting because, you know, this is post-Frankenstein book, yep. but pre-Frankenstein not the first Frankenstein movie, but right. pre iconic We covered the first Frankenstein movie. movie. Yeah. Which, uh, notably, the monster was made in, like, a weird cauldron. Um, because, I don't know if we talked about this that much in that episode, but in the book Frankenstein, it's never really explicitly stated how the monster is created. It's, like, through some hmm. sort of vague scientific means that Frankenstein discovers, but it, it's, it doesn't go into any detail about it. It's, like, mainly very, very vaguely implied to be something like electricity. But electricity is not mentioned hmm. as, like, a thing. Uh, and by Frankenstein, by, by the monster, you mean Frankenstein, right? I mean the creature. Frankenstein's monster, the creature. Oh, you mean, that's Frankenstein. Frankenstein's mon- <laughs> What is it? Frankenstein's monster's monster, Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, this the scene of... Um, the inventor uh animating the the uh robot and adding mm-hmm. the, the human face to it very frankenstein uh, yeah. in the kind of way that you imagine frankenstein yeah, like, uh l- creation to be water like boiling liquids and like sparks and lightning yeah. bolts and like weird uh sci-fi machinery 
looks like the Godzilla the Godzilla guy's laboratory too. The Godzilla uh, guy? Uh, the, the scientist in the first Godzilla oh, movie right, has a yeah, very yeah, Frankenstein-y. Uh, Dr. Sarazawa. There you go. <laughs> uh, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, though. I mean, I don't know. If you're listening to a silent movie podcast, you probably know about Metropolis, but I feel like we should give it, give it a quick Well, yeah. Uh, so this movie was written by Thea Von Harbo, who was at the time married to Fritz Lang, the director. Um, and she wrote this as a serialized novel, I think sort of a, about the same time as she was writing it as a screenplay, sort of always intending for it to be a movie. Hmm. And Fritz Lang kind of contributed to the script. Uh, they were married when they made this movie. Uh, they divorced in 1933 because of infidelity and also probably because Thea Von Harbo was a Nazi at that point. Dang. Uh, yeah. I mean... I, I tried to find some more kind of concrete confirmation on, like, how much of a Nazi she was. Um, and it seems a little vague, but it's like, she didn't leave. And she, like, stayed to make, you know, state-sponsored uh, movies. So, but anyway. Uh, this movie is about uh, a, a rich boy uh, in a big dystopian city where all the rich people live uh, above ground in giant gleaming skyscrapers and all of the not rich people live underground and have to work the machinery to keep keep the city running basically this is an extremely socialist movie yeah um <laughs> it's uh well, it, it's this movie is extremely something but it it's so kind of vague and broad in its like social messaging that i feel like it it can be and has been pulled in different directions by different people in reading in different ways i guess but it's like all about like the working class versus the ruling class you know yeah it problematizes it a bit um i think that the last time that i watched this movie which was maybe four years ago um i kind of came away thinking that it had a bit more radical of a message than it does Mm -hmm. yeah i think i probably did also yeah Rewatching it this time, I was like, okay, like, I guess it's kind of saying that we should all just get along. Yes. In a way. <laughs> Ultimately, I wholly agree. The ultimate message of this movie is why can't we all just get along? <laughs> Which like, is not does... nearly as kind of subversive as uh, it almost like pretends to be, I feel like. Yeah. I, it makes me wonder, like, what was going on and with. I don't know what there's so much social messaging in this movie. I, mm-hmm. th- I think that a yeah. lot of it is not broad. A lot of it is like very pointed and the place that it's pointing is toward revolution of the proletariat, you know? <laughs> yeah. Then it adds in these kind of weird, complicating elements that are driven by the sci-fi addicts of the movie mm-hmm. uh, of uh, Maria, uh, the robot, uh, the robot version of Maria. Um, right. Who... Maria isn't a robot. But there is a robot that pretends to be Maria. Yeah. So there's this big divide between the working class who live underground uh, and work 50% of the time. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, ruling class who live in a beautiful lush gardens and crazy skyscrapers and uh, rapture yeah. up upstairs. One of the first scenes is we see a shift change of the of the workers and they're all sort of walking in this like, kind of mechanical way. They've been turned into tools. 
They've yes. been turned into robots, becoming item like instrumentalized by yeah. uh, the society. It's uh, it's workers leaving a factory, right? <laughs> One of the first things ever, you know, like shown to people on film. What a legacy! <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. There's these there's these themes that carry on through all of film history. I'm noticing, which are trains and workers leaving factories. Um, so yeah, they're referred to as the head and the hands, right? The head being the the ruling class of mm-hmm. you know they're just all thinking about stuff all the time, and the hands just being in this perpetual state of work. And we meet uh, Freider, who is the son of the, I guess, the architect of the city. Mm-hmm. Yo, Yo Freiderson. Yes. Uh, and 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 Freider lives like a very insulated life. He's he's a rich boy who has never thought about the kind of struggle and pain that goes into upholding the society that he lives in. Right. He's I'm un- blissfully unaware of it. Even yeah. Like he, it's not even that it doesn't cross his. It's like. He's never been told about it, I assume. Yeah, and uh, one day, uh, Maria, who is kind of like a preacher, uh, uh, in the down, the down below The region. downstairs. <laughs> she, she, lives down, she lives downstairs. Yeah, upstairs, um, downstairs. She uh, uh, comes and brings a bunch of children up on an elevator into the was it called the pleasure garden i think i think so yeah uh and it's like it's this like botanical garden right but it's all like sci-fi plants it's like there's this cool like panorama shot of a painting like a panoramic painting of like these crazy trees and plants and things Mm -hmm. so it's like even the gardens are like exaggerated sci-fi uh craziness but presumably you know it is on earth so presumably it is like science has created all of these cool plants yeah yeah that get to that people get to look at in the garden <laughs> she's like kind of a preacher slash like revolutionary political leader uh and she brings a bunch of children up in an elevator to the pleasure garden and they're all just in rags and dirty and suffering she's like look, this is how the other half lives, children, you know? Yeah. And then she's, like, almost immediately, like, pushed back in the elevator <laughs> by the guards. You'd think that if you can just take an elevator, it might be a little easier to... It might be a little Maybe. difficult Maybe there was a whole story we didn't classes. see yeah. of, like, the, she had to, like, break into the elevator. Mm. But so Freighter sees uh, Maria, and he's like, who is she? Hello. Hubba, hubba. <laughs> he follows her down to the underground city. Yeah. Because he's like, I want to see where this goes. I would, I should say, it's not a hubba hubba situation. It's like, he he does seem like concerned that there are uh, people who are sad living in right. the Right. He, he's, he's, he's simultaneously hubba hubba and also like, wait, who are these people? Where do they come from? Where are they going? Yeah. Kinda and so he, he follows them down and he finds himself in the, the factory bowels of metropolis mm-hmm. there's all these massive machines and this great musical score going on and he sees this uh this giant machine right yeah um and he gets bonked on the head and he looks up at it and he sees a scene from the movie kabiria <laughs> taking it back once again <laughs> um i didn't realize that he got bonked on the head i thought he was just so overcome 
with uh i believe he gets bonked in the head like right before the transition where he sees the big factory thing that transforms into the temple of moloch yeah so immediately when he walks in like it's this giant machine like you were saying that has all these like workers switching things back and forth but like you know and they're all like they're all like synchronized like in like it's almost like a dance but yeah. they're all like doing their you know their i mean they look moods. like robots like yeah, which yeah. i they I'm all sure look like they look like pieces of machinery sort of yeah yeah and so i mean i think you know this whole scene is like probably one of the most metaphorically you know dense Rich. parts of yeah. the the movie um so it's this like the all the machine has all these panels on it that the the people the workers are attending to they're like sweating and suffering like while they're mm-hmm. doing all of this because it's like uh it's like hard work and it's hot and everything like this and then there are stairs that go up uh in the middle of the kind of big machine and that is where when he gets bonked he sees this big moloch mouth that uh is eating all of the workers well, it's like the it's like he sees the workers being like fed into it. Yeah. By by like soldiers. Yeah. So like old old timey like ancient uh, not Egyptian but like you know Mesopotamian guys. Yeah. So he's like yeah it's like drawing this parallel between like the suffering of workers for the benefit of the great city above and uh, sacrificing innocent souls to an eldritch god. You know. Yeah. Yeah and uh it's so cool (laughs) and and it's like saying a lot it's saying a lot to the audience about labor and it is saying a lot to freighter about labor yeah and he is instantly like this is horrible i did not know that my entire life was built on the suffering of other people (laughs) yeah there's also like an industrial accident that he sees where like people are like blown up and like thrown off the machine and like it catches fire and yeah and then they're like, get back on the machine. You have to keep, like, yeah. like the work must continue. So, naturally, he goes up upstairs to his dad, who lives in the new Tower of Babel, which is not, this massive... Not a bad thing to name your <laughs> your yeah. tower. Yeah, no, no possible uh, negative connotations there, or, or bad omens. And so he goes up to his dad, who is sort of runs the city, basically. Um, and I run like, this city. Yeah uh he's you know looking out windows all stern like um and he's like hey dad what's up with all the people you know being worked to death in the in the basement and he's like keeping the city running like you like being rich don't you and he's like (laughs) uh is that all that all you have to say he's like yeah i know like what about it so freighter is uh not happy about this so he goes back down to the the workers level and uh, decides to switch places with one of the one of the workers who's I think only ever identified by his number, one one eight one one, and so they like swap clothing and Freighter goes to work on the clock machine for ten hours, which is this giant circular thing that looks like a clock that he's just moving hands around. It's not ten hours though; it's twelve hours. That's another kind of like really subtle thing that the movie does is they have a clock for the upstairs people, which is a normal 12-hour clock. And mm-hmm. they have a clock for the subterranean people, which is 10 hours. So they've taken the day and divided it into 20 oh. instead of 24. 
so that they're working longer shifts. How did I not pick up on that? It, I mean, they don't ever call attention. They right. call attention to it a little bit, but they show yeah. the two clocks next to each other. Right. Um, but There's a lot of clock imagery. So Definitely. Yeah. The, the machine that Freighter is on is like a big clock. But yeah, like it's like this kind of subtle way that they're like mentally engineering these people right. to like work more. Damn. The other the other kind of crazy thing that happens is that like there's a guy that kind of works under uh, his dad. Oh right, yeah. Freighter goes up to him and he's like, or y- Yo is his first name, I guess. Um, I I think it's Yo like short for Johan. Okay, yeah. Because Johan is spelled J O H. J O H. Yeah. Like so. And then also his uh, dead wife's name is Hel, which I assume is short for like Helena or some other like German name. Or short for Hell. But it's like they they're they both have like three letter names, which I assume are short for longer mm-hmm. names. So he goes up and tells his dad about the explosion, uh, and his dad has like these kind of underlings, and he says to the underling, like, one, why'd you let my son see all this stuff, and two. <laughs> what's with the explosion uh and you didn't tell me about it and he was like uh uh uh, uh sir i didn't i didn't mean to uh i, I should have i didn't get the chance to tell you i was gonna try and deal with it myself the big papa says you're fired buddy and then this guy uh walks out and then pulls out a gun and tries to shoot himself <laughs> uh because uh being fired from the upstairs basically means that you become a laborer downstairs and like he knows how terrible that is, and he's like, I'd rather die, basically. Yep. Which is also saying a lot. Yeah. But Freighter stops him, and he's yeah. like, you can come stay in my apartment. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I'll get you a new job. Don't don't go, don't go crazy. And then, I mean, there's a lot of... This movie is pretty plotty. A lot of things happen, especially in the, the fully restored ones. There's, all, there's a whole subplot with... Uh, Yo sends, like, his, his spy after his old assistant to like spy on him and find out where freighter is going i feel like we need to like keep keep this keep this ball rolling fair talk about the robot (laughs) right yo freighterson uh, is aware of some kind of like he's finding all these map fragments on the workers right and so he takes the map fragments to his old buddy rot wang not rot vang i guess rot vang would be the more accurate pronunciation who is a mad scientist who was in love with uh freighter's mother Mm-hmm. and it's i guess it's sort of ambiguous what the love triangle situation between them three was between yo rotvang and hell but rotvang has a giant statue head of hell in his house his house being this like spooky like wizard's cottage in the middle of this like futuristic city which is it's very weird yeah cool. it's like a shack that's like yeah. in the middle of all this art deco uh beauty but so at some like Rotvang was in love with Freighter's mother and holds a grudge against Yo for stealing his girl, basically. And Rotvang has built a robot to replace Hell. Uh the coolest robot ever made. True. And and not the first German movie we've seen to replace a real woman with a robot. <laughs> True. Yeah. But so they, they figure out that the papers are a map of the catacombs, so they go down to the catacombs, uh, Rotvang and Yo, and they find this sort of secret meeting being led by Maria where she's, she's, she's talking about a prophecy about a mediator oh. between the, the classes, right? She's like, right. There will, there will be a person. She tells the story of the original tower of Babel and how it, you know, fell and the 
the class divide is what brought it down um and then she's like but we like someone's gonna show up and they're gonna be the heart that will connect the head and the hands the big thing of this movie is the the mediator between the head and the hands has to be the heart and freighter is in the meeting he hears this and immediately is like guess they're talking about me (laughs) he is like immediately like oh this like prophetic chosen one figure it's like oh that's it's clearly me right cool i mean you know he's doing the right thing generally right yes i just think that's very funny that he immediately is like (laughs) oh yeah me totally totally me definitely who they're talking about (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't know in a way in a way it makes sense because you know he is the only person from uh the city to seem to care about the lives of the people Below, right. them, below them or the only one willing to like do anything about it for sure yeah yeah so then yo wants rotvang to make to to make the robot into a duplicate of maria because rotvang has said like i can make this robot look like anybody and he's like make it look like maria and then can swap it out with the with the real maria and completely discredit her whole movement and rotvang agrees but secretly he's planning to use the robot to like undermine yo and sort of destroyed the city that he's built he's trying to bring the whole thing down so rotvang kidnaps maria and uh in the scene we were talking about before transfers her likeness onto the robot through all of his sci-fi machinery and it's very Mm -hmm. cool it's probably going to be the the uh the thumbnail of this episode you'll Um, see it you've seen it (laughs) you've definitely seen it it's in every montage of film history ever done then we get another great stretch of the movie which is robo maria just fucking shit up (laughs) we get the sexy robot dance scene which is crazy and i think like kind of unintentionally funny but it is just great in general it's it's just her dancing really weird and she like is so entrancing to all of the men around her this is like isn't these aren't the people underground too it's like right he's kind of revealing his new robot sleeper agent at a party in, in like a nightclub in the city yeah and he's just like check out my robot sleeper agent also she can dance yeah um and, and then all of the men turn turn into like like blubbering ghouls at the sight of her dance um and there's just some great that's shots the sexiest of like a, robot i've ever seen <laughs> a, but, well she looks like a human they don't know yeah. she's a robot but they're all like staring right into camera just making the most like lecherous creepy faces possible there's a, a great like multiple exposure shot of just eyes yeah all these different eyes different sizes which was shot like proper multiple exposure they had to just mask off part of the shot shoot an eyeball mask off a different part shoot a different eyeball like rerun the film through the camera every time yeah that's cool yeah that those shots are really cool looking and like it's some of the more um kind of avant-garde stuff that the film gets into Mm -hmm. which you know you could i mean it's clearly like doing an objectification thing in fact she is an object in a way Mm uh like we're talking about there's a lot going on in this movie uh there's there's a whole thing in this dance scene too that is like kind of lost and i think in almost every version of the movie except for the most recent restoration mm -hmm. where there's other scenes referring to like uh this like multi-headed beast and like uh 
like a woman who will who will ride the the beast and like bring doom to civilization and we see that in the dance scene she's like on this giant like sculpture of a creature yeah um and that whole sort of like symbolic thing is kind of lost in in i think everything but the most recent restoration because those other scenes referring to that stuff aren't there as with um, this and like Maria's whole thing and the Tower of Babel, like there's a lot of religious imagery going on and like mm-hmm. religious like uh, reference going yeah. on in this. Which um, notably was like the first thing they cut out. Like that's a lot of the stuff mm. that's been restored more recently is that mm. like all like the religious subtext and sort of the more, I guess, sort of like spiritual aspect of the movie. Um, I guess I'm like a little unsure on what it's doing with all of that stuff uh right it's referencing it in terms of like oh it's the tower of babel it's a thing that failed you know yeah yeah. uh but like i feel like it's got so much of it in it that it's doing something else with it but i'm not entirely clear on what there's definitely a lot of just ideas of like femininity and i mean like real life maria is like like maternity personified like she's like leading all the children she's like this sort of like innocent like noble figure and then robot maria is like a sexy femme fatale robot lady yeah it's Um, like it's like kind of like the the virgin and whore dichotomy yes but like within the same person in a way which is wild Yeah. (laughs) yeah robot maria is also like undermining the whole before she was sort of sermonizing about like trying to find peace between the classes and now robot maria is like no we need to take the fight to them we need to bring the shit down and which is an intentional thing that yo says okay like we're gonna have her take the place of the original maria and then make the underclass get violent so that we have an excuse to violently stamp them back into place like this is all part you know, I was saying sleeper agent before. This is all part of a deliberate plot to make the rebels like go too far. Yeah. And this is the whole thing where I I feel like, yeah, I got the feeling of this being a revolutionary movie before, but then like where it ends up with this stuff, like feels like actually this entirely corrupt, horrific system shouldn't be brought down, you know? <laughs> well, because then it's like rotvang's plan right is to like bring the whole system down right like rotvang just wants to see yo suffer he just wants to see his his shit get destroyed yeah yeah there's a there's an uprising led by robot maria um yeah they they destroy a bunch of stuff uh and yo intentionally lets them do it uh so that, that so that they can kind of put them down once and for all uh they they can express their revolutionary sentiment and then see that it failed so uh give up and become slaves again basically yeah but so they're 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 uh they're uprising they they attack the heart machine which uh unbeknownst to them once they destroy it floods the undercity mm-hmm. where they've left all of their children behind and so real maria escapes in a scene that is uh mostly lost um and her and freighter go down and uh are trying to help the children escape there's a whole escape thing where like the city is flooding and the buildings are being crumbling and being destroyed and they have to like bring all these children up through it and it's not so and cool in the above ground there's 
like the angry mob realizes that their undercity has flooded and they think all their children are dead. So they basically lynch robot Maria and burn her at the stake where it is revealed that she is a robot a la uh, Terminator. <laughs> this movie is so cool. <laughs> yeah. And so then they realize that they've been duped, I guess, to a degree. And like the, the children come up, up, up above ground and uh, uh, Rotvang tries to recapture Maria because he's like still looking for a replacement for hell. Uh, and Freder chases after them and uh, Freder and uh, Rotvang have a big fight on top of the roof of a church like the end of Batman and Rotvang falls off and Freder becomes like the, the fabled die hard. <laughs> yes. Uh, Freder becomes the fabled mediator between the head and the hands, the heart. And it's sort of at the end everyone's like okay, we can we can work together now and maybe the situation will improve. With like the religious or sort of like stuff I know that the novel had a lot more like mysticism and witchcraft and mm. kind of supernatural stuff. And a lot of the like old Babylonian gods, the like eldritch god stuff is oh, more, uh, more prevalent in the novel. There's cool. also a lot more like drug use and like hallucinatory stuff. What? Um, and this movie has some hallucinatory stuff in it for sure. Um, a lot of like the nightclub scenes, some of them more recently restored stuff is like, Oh, right, so when the, the worker that switches places with Freighter goes above ground, he finds a bunch of money in his pockets, because they're, it's Freighter's clothes, and he's like, you know what, I was gonna go, like, go back to his apartment like I said I was gonna do, but I could just go to the club instead, and he does that. <laughs> and I think for all of this movie's kind of, like, flash, it's very flashy, and it is incredibly lavish and gorgeous to look at, the storytelling of it is fairly straightforward. It is pretty, like, as I guess we've been saying, like, it is clearly has a lot to say, but ultimately almost it feels like it's not maybe willing to commit to like any one stance. It feels very broad in its messaging. I think this, this dinged the movie a little bit for me, honestly, like I have always listed this as one of my favorites and mm. uh, like re on reevaluation. I just don't like a movie that can't like, can't like, it doesn't have guts, you know? Mm this like knocked it down a peg for me because the movie uh the movie lacks chutzpah you know <laughs> uh um, it, it gestures i i don't know it's which is weird it gestures so hard at like extremely progressive revolutionary politics uh and then kind of just backs away at the end i mean it's it's definitely going for a similar kind of mythic storytelling that I think mm -hmm. is very popular in Germany at, at the time. and Con Considering that it's written by a, a future Nazi, uh, the right. mythic, mythic storytelling and uh, occult stuff uh, kind of makes sense. Yeah, which is a thing. I mean, Fritz Lang liked this movie seemingly when he made it, but sort of later seemed to sour on it. I, like, There's like later quotes and interviews and things with him. Where he's like, ah, yeah, Metropolis, not my favorite. And I think a lot of that might have had to do with the fact that this movie was very much embraced by Nazis of being like, look, a big city. We love that. <laughs> a symphony of a great city. We love that. <laughs> uh, so I think that element of it and probably, you know, it's like he doesn't want to watch the movie that he made with his ex who became a Nazi. Like, that's not <laughs> fun for him. I wouldn't either. <laughs> yeah, of course. 
I think the biggest kind of truth that this movie gets at, or the, the biggest kind of takeaway from all of its messaging that I think is like a good core message to take away from it is like how large groups of the population are often pitted against each other on the whims of like a handful of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That it's like, it's just basically Yo and Rotfang have this dumb rivalry because they were both in love with the same woman. And that basically like almost destroys an, an entire city because they're trying to like pit people against each other. They're trying to, trying to pit like populations against each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like the rich and powerful use the world and humans as their playthings. And that was the thing where I was like, that feels very relevant as relevant today as it did then. Mm-hmm. And I think is like, that was my sort of thing where I was like, okay, this is, this is the thing I can take away from this movie that feels right and feels like the movie is actually saying something of value. And also uh, that when you're working for for your overlords, you are getting swallowed by a beast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think no matter how it you know pussyfoots on the ultimate like answer to this question, it is like making this big statement about how like laborers are uh are being fed to yeah their owners they, uh, their their bodies are being sacrificed yeah. for the the status quo to continue running it is um it, so i i was able to watch this in a movie theater uh that i used to work in that has a uh <laughs> that had that is uh due to as evidenced in a number of articles that have come out uh and experience uh kind of a rough place to work um and uh it i think it is fitting that the the theater um had the the theater's entrance is the moloch mouth from metropolis Mm. uh which ever since i started there and saw that i was like i've got to watch metropolis in this theater you got it but it is kind of funny that it's like yes workers who are working extremely long back-breaking shifts walk <laughs> through this moloch mouth uh <laughs> you got you got you got in this shift in the clock machine it's it's, it's cool it's very cool um, but maybe a bit yeah. of a messaging mistake <laughs> yeah yeah there is that there's that great intertitle thing with like the words moloch coming up in yeah. like an animated intertitle i love an animated cool. intertitle oh, they're <laughs> i whenever they pop up i genuinely i'm, I'm so happy they're very cool. So this super famous uh, film by a famous German director, the other super famous German director of silent film, F.W. Murnau, also released a film this year. However, it was his first uh, American picture. Mm-hmm. And it was also the first unique and artistic picture. <laughs> Correct. We're talking about Sunrise, yeah. a song of two humans. A lot of, like, colon titles this year. <laughs> What, what right, a, Berlin, a symphony of a great city. The Lodger, a, a tale of London fog. Uh-huh. Sunrise, a song of two humans. One of the first two uh, Academy Award winners for Best Picture in 1929. I first saw this movie at Brooklyn College and was kind of blown away by it. I had never heard of it before. I didn't know anything about it. I went in completely blind, and I was like, "Good golly, what a what a picture!" <laughs> and this is for. Up until, like, we started this podcast, I considered this my favorite silent movie. I don't know if that's entirely true anymore. There's some others that are creeping up there. Mm-hmm. But so I'm very curious to, see, to hear just, like, what what are your thoughts? This movie 
is a uh, I, I feel like every time um <laughs> every time it's been happening a lot with like almost every episode where i'm like now this is movies <laughs> <laughs> and and i feel like i felt that very strongly with this and uh wings which we'll talk about later capital m movies they're yeah. like oh this this one's got everything this is uh i, I was just like this is hollywood baby <laughs> yeah i mean sunrise is it's still one of my favorite silent movies for sure mm-hmm. and it might even creep up into just generic like one of my favorite movies i've ever seen mm-hmm. like it i think this movie's so good i i like it a lot uh i think that there's an element of this movie that held me back a little bit uh Mm. that element being i never really bought the romance of it uh this the kind of central romance Mm -hmm. of this movie uh i was always a little uneasy about it Uh, it asks a lot of the audience for sure to buy into the central romance (laughs) and this movie is a very that's the whole point of it right is the romance yeah and I felt like it kept doing all of these things to sort of undermine. I wasn't sure if it was intentional or not, like to mm. undermine how much you're supposed to get swept up in this romance. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's definitely, it's, it's, uh, it's a weird movie to be this romantic considering the places it goes. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess, yeah, just a little, a little backstory stuff. This is F.W. Murnau's first uh, movie working as a director in the States. We know him from Nosferatu and Faust and yeah. uh, The Last Laugh and um, a bunch of other stuff. This is also, I believe, the first feature to use sound on film technology. Hmm. And that this has synchronized music and some sound effects that are, like, you know, attached to it on the film itself. Uh, in in the in the way the thirty five millimeter film still it's a different process now it's different but the the idea of having the strips on the side that contain the soundtrack mm-hmm. uh, this mm-hmm. was the first feature to use as far as I know and it kind of this movie takes place in a kind of vague setting it's not really clear if it's supposed to be the United States or Europe it could kind of be either one it's or just both the, or the neither country and the big city exactly uh, in a way that I love I love the vagary of the setting Mm -hmm. and yeah it's got that whole opening bit with like there's like the ship like the multiple exposure like collage stuff there's a lot of that this year i've noticed too of like kind of visual collage being done through Mm. multiple exposure of like yeah different shots being combined together in really cool ways this movie has a ton of that in really amazing amazing stuff and i feel like this movie is very lavish for sure but in a way that feels less indulgent than i think some of Murnau's earlier stuff. Maybe just Faust. Because um, Faust is like throwing a lot of stuff at the screen all the time. Right. And it sometimes, I think I said in that episode, like it feels like he's kind of showing off sometimes. Whereas this movie is just as lavish, if not more so, but it, it doesn't feel as uh, it's, yeah, indulgent. It's visually rich, but it feels like it should be. Yes. It feels like it, it feels motivated and earned, and it, it has a point. I, I think that this is another example. You were talking about those early shots. Uh, something that Murnau does that I really like is that he 
he has so much depth in his shots mm. uh and yeah. it's like it's not like it, there's a lot going on uh in like what axis would you call that i don't know what all the axes are oh yeah the z axis yeah there's so much going on in the z axis but without being busy like it's all very thoughtfully put together mm -hmm. of yeah. where things are in the frame and like how they're lit so that you can have these shots that are very often it seems like another big motif with him is like glass in the middle of the frame and so they're like separated by glass and all this other kind of stuff yeah. and so those yeah they're shots of like a train station right at the beginning of the movie mm -hmm. uh and yeah it's just like beautiful it's beautiful yeah a lot of a lot of camera movement mm -hmm. and a lot of like subtle camera movement too in ways that feel very modern and i think feel modern in a way that i think a lot of like 30s and 40s movies don't because they were kind of restrained by sound tech mm -hmm. where they had to shoot on sound stages and they had to put the camera in a giant box to film in because of the sound i think now that we're in this like last hurrah kind of of silent film yeah we're seeing a lot of stuff that almost didn't come back until like the 50s or 60s because it was like they didn't have to worry about sound so they were like doing a lot more camera movement and like expressive camera stuff yeah and i think we're now is really at the forefront of that oh yeah because like last laugh was a huge that i feel like really kind of pushed like the medium forward in a big way mm -hmm. and i feel like even other directors saw last laugh and they're like oh shit oh shit we gotta we gotta do more of this now we gotta move this camera around <laughs> yeah so i don't know we should probably this movie is not super plotty this movie's very this movie kind of feels almost like a fairy tale yeah in, in terms of how uh, uh it could just get really dark really quickly <laughs> yeah or start really i mean it starts with this sort of like kind of establishing the setting right of like the, the city the country yeah life life is happy we see people going across the the water from the city to the country and then we meet our main characters who are not in the best place in life no they're a husband and wife who ha their marriage has lost all happiness the husband doesn't love love the wife anymore and uh he's being seduced by this uh vamp from the city a city uh, woman i think is how she's referred to a city woman a woman of paris so he's just like a total garbage fan yeah, we, uh, we see a brief kind of flashback of them in their happier days, like, yeah. on the farm, and then we kind of contrast that with now they're both just, like, like miserable. both depressed, miserable, yeah. can't even look at each other. They have a child that neither of them seems to pay any attention to. Although, they just you have know, a nanny. The, the wife, like, she seems to be, uh, you know, she, there's nothing wrong with her, right? There's something right, wrong yeah. with the guy. Yeah, it's just, yeah. like, she she is just you know living a horrible life yeah so the the husband is and there's no character names in this it's just like the man the woman the woman from the city yeah i think it is like husband wife woman from the city so the husband goes off to meet the city woman in a sort of uh a sexy swamp rendezvous at night meet me in the swamp she is just like let's, is, let's that get... a, is that our episode title sexy swamp rendezvous <laughs> she's like let's get shreky in the swamp uh and yeah. then and she's like hey you know it'd be a good idea you know what i've been thinking about because you know we want to we really want a relationship to take off here well at first she's like i think you should move with me 
back to the city. Like, you should come with me back to the city and we can live together. And he's like, well, what about my wife? And she's like, eh, you could always just drown her, I guess. <laughs> that and, would solve that problem. <laughs> and initially he's like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. Get away from me. You're horrible. And then he's like, hmm. <laughs> you know, now that I think about it. I really could drown my wife. <laughs> and so he like goes through this whole plan. I mean, there's like moments where he's definitely throughout where he's definitely having second thoughts about it, but he's like, yeah, procuring like, all these, he's procuring all these reeds that float, right? Bundles of reeds. He's going to go out on the water with his wife on the boat and going to flip the boat over. She's going to drown. He's going to float away on the reeds and he's going to get rid of the reeds. So then it'll be like, oh, there was an accident. Yeah. And yeah, he's having a lot of second thoughts. The city woman is like just completely on board. This was her idea in the first place. And she's just eagerly anticipating him coming back, having drowned his wife. Right. So then like the next day, he is like, all right, let's go out on the water. And the wife is like kind of excited. She's like, oh, like we're actually doing something as a couple now. We're going to go to the city. Like he's reaching out to me. Although he does, he does go like, Hey, let's go on the water. Looks like yeah. <laughs> let's uh, we should get on the boat. That'll be a good. The idea. husband at this point is the most surly looking man alive. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, they go out in the water, and he is about to just like chuck her into the water. He is like yeah, he's like hulking over her. Like yeah. you see the shot he like is... of his back. And yeah. her just oh. horror looking at him. So good. Yeah, realizing he, like, what he's about to do. Yeah. So, like, you know, she's having this kind of cautiously optimistic time uh, with this yeah. guy who's acting weird. Uh, and then she's like, oh, that's why he's acting weird. Like, oh, God. He's going to murder uh, me. So he has second thoughts right as... Um, the Like, the, the closest he could po- possibly get to murdering her and not doing it is how far he goes with it and he is so scary is the thing yeah like he is going to kill her he has like lost all all soul you can see murder in his eyes yeah Yeah. and like when he and he's not saying anything either right Mm -hmm. like she's trying to have conversations with him and he is just silent he's just rowing like with on a mission uh after this happens he's like oh god what have i done um yeah he he sits back down and still not saying anything just quickly rows back to shore uh and he's like baby let's talk about this and then she just she's like no (laughs) she just runs away yeah as Uh, well she should she runs away from the person who was about to murder her um and he he chases after her and they get to a uh a sort of trolley that leads to the city and she jumps on the trolley to escape, and he catches up, and he also jumps on the trolley. And they kind of stand on the trolley in this really tense trolley ride of, like, are we not going to talk about the fact you just tried to kill me? But yeah. they don't. And, and you know, I think he's trying to do what he can to smooth things over, uh, but she's not really, like, she's like, you just tried to kill me. I'm not listening to you. Uh Yeah. And, like, so she can't, uh, like, they get to the city and she keeps trying to escape from him again. And he keeps having to, like, restrain her to... Yeah. He keeps, like, yeah, chasing her and, like, grabbing hold of her. And it's, like, he's trying to, I guess, apologize or to, like, smooth things over. And it's, like, 
dude, it's I don't know. That's that's a that's a rough thing to walk back. Just let it go. Let it go. Except the movie is the movie's on his side <laughs> because well, the movie is a a hopelessly romantic movie. Um, yeah. and it it needs to start in the lowest. It needs to start in a place where it's like these two people are not going to reconcile. Like you you can't come back from this. And then they see they stumble into a wedding. Yeah, they go to a like, church. We're married. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, more or less, yeah. Um, this is why and, I didn't buy it. <laughs> right, it's this. This scene is like a super pivotal scene, and it happens very quickly. And I think this is probably the scene that needs the most work, I guess, <laughs> because it is like they go from this thing of like, I need to get away from you because you tried to kill me. Yeah, going and watching a wedding happen and sort of like, yeah, remembering that they were married. And, you know, they're, they're, the wedding's happening and they're hearing the talk about, you know, commitment and love and all this stuff. And they're looking at each other and they're like, we did all, say all this stuff already, I guess. <laughs> um, And so they at least come to a place where they're like, all right, let's at least be there for each other yeah. right now. They're like, and so they're they, like cautiously like, okay, like. You know, you're, I understand that you're not trying to kill me anymore. Right. Okay. Like, clean slate. Let's, like, build up from here. <laughs> so then they, they, they walk out of the church, and it's like everyone thinks that it's the couple getting married, and it's just them, and they leave. And then we have basically the entire, like, second act of this movie is them, like, doing romantic hijinks in the city. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, it is nice. Like, there is a lot of it that is sweet and very romantic. Right after they leave the church, there's an amazing scene, shot scene, of them walking through the street. And the street fades into... They stay in the same place. It's like their center frame. The street around them transforms into, like, the country. This, like, sun-dappled country land. This, I believe, is a new effect. I think yeah. this might be the first time that uh that is used uh, ever uh it's effectively a green screen i mean it's a it's a matte shot right like but it's a but it's a traveling matted mat. out yes uh, so it's rotoscoping around them mm -hmm. the entire time where they yeah. can fade in these other scenes and nothing's like that kind of hazy multiple exposure kind of thing it's like they have like a kind of cutout around them that's done yeah. fairly well and then these scenes are just there behind them yeah and yeah it's using these effects for like amazing kind of metaphorical purpose yeah yeah it's like they're they're like locked in each other's eyes they're just like lost in the moment walking together we see the world around them change and then the world comes crashing back when all of the cars on the street crash into each other because they're walking through traffic <laughs> they're too they're too lost in, in each other's eyes uh, and like, ha like, yeah, just seeing all of life go by beyond them to realize that they're walking into traffic. Which, I mean, this applies to like this whole middle section of the movie. I think this movie does a really good job of capturing that feeling of like losing yourself in the moment, kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think and that it does is the it thing visually that... too. Right. Cool. I think that is the thing that makes this movie work, uh, despite its ridiculous, crazy premise um is that it, it it nails that stuff so well like once they do start to reconcile i do really genuinely buy 
their their romance like once there's that initial spot where it's like it's such a sharp like turn from like murder to like at least kind of passivity or like kind of coming back from it that change happens really quickly but i think the the sort of longer build up of them leaving the church and then like they go to the barber shop and they go into like getting food and all these adventures they have in the city they go to the portrait studio that's fun um, Some fun hijinks they go dancing like all of that all of these scenes are so good and so romantic that i i i, I the movie just works for me yeah, they're rediscovering their love i'm also a big softy you know i'll admit to that uh and yeah this is where i think a lot of the comedy of the movie comes in like this totally feels so different from the the beginning of the movie is like gothic and dark and creepy and like you know there's like murder plots happening and that now it's like a romantic comedy of them like let's go to a portrait studio and take crazy pictures <laughs> let's let's uh let's uh, uh uh play this game where we make pigs fall down and then one of the pigs gets away and then we have to catch the pig yeah and then uh a chef sees the pig under a blanket and for 50 seconds the chef thinks there were monsters on the road <laughs> And then the the pig drinks wine and gets drunk and stumbles around. Yeah, yeah. We gotta catch a drunk pig. There's a there's a good bit where they go to like a like a hair salon place and um the husband is getting his his haircut and he's getting shaved and this uh woman comes up to like give him a, a manicure or whatever and it's like the the wife has to be like, Get out of here. He doesn't need a manicure. <laughs> <laughs> Not my man. Yeah, there's like, like a guy hitting on the wife then and there. Oh, I mean, this is the other thing, right? I was getting ready to buy this romance, right? Yeah. I was getting ready to go like, it's a melodrama, they reconciled, right? And then, and this is, you know, this the score emphasizes this moment. So mm. I know it was on purpose, I guess. Uh, uh, the kind of movie tone printed on score mm -hmm. yeah. um because when the guy is coming up to the wife and or the 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 this other guy trying to hit on her mm -hmm. and then the husband comes up and then menacingly comes toward this other guy yeah with a knife and and he's like stay away from my wife and the music turns to these kind of ear like like ominous strings right yeah and and i'm like oh god like he is still dangerous you know <laughs> like yeah they're doing this kind of thing that they did in the lodger a little bit where they're playing with it because it ends up being that he just like uses the knife for an innocent purpose but he's like threatening this guy with a knife and this is a guy that 20 minutes ago was about to murder somebody right yeah and about to murder his wife yes yeah. and so that moment like, I think without that moment, this movie, like, would have worked a lot better for me. Mm. Because that moment made me think, this isn't going to be a happy ending. This is going to be them rekindling their romance only for it to fall apart again. Because he is irrevocably violent. Mm. Right? And that was, like, where I was expecting the movie to go. And then it just kind of ended sincerely, you know? Yeah. I mean, I do think the movie sets itself up for having a very tragic ending up mm -hmm. until very late 
uh it, it really only is like happy and sincere right at the end like like last laugh yeah but yeah it's like I've, i'd forgotten about that moment that is a weird moment that is sort of you're almost like oh no is he gonna kill somebody <laughs> which yeah i don't know i don't know if i can uh you know i'm not gonna defend it but I, I think I think the intent there is to kind of keep keep a bit of the ambiguity, keep keep a bit of the tension of like, how is the story gonna end? Because after all the hijinks in the city, they get back on their boat, and they're going back, right? They've they fully reconciled and rekindled. They are like as in love as they ever have been by the point that they leave the city. And they get back on the boat and they're rowing back across the water, and a storm hits, and suddenly they're in the stormy waters. They get thrown overboard. The The husband makes his way to, to shore, but he doesn't know what happened to the wife. Um, and so he, he gets the, the town together to do a, a, a rescue party, and they're going out on the water, and they just find a bundle of the, the, the floating reeds that he had initially brought out as a way of surviving his murder attempt, his sort of staged murder thing. And they're like, oh, I guess she's she's gone like they they can't find a body or anything we the audience see that she is floating away uh, i i mean i that that moment is ambiguous i think it's like either she's floating away safe or floating away dead right um, yes meanwhile the city woman's like goody goody gumdrops my plan went <laughs> like happened properly so then he meets up like like he's he's back at the town thinking that his wife has died via accident now right after he's sort of like rekindled his love with her mm -hmm. and he sees the city woman and she's like hello i see that you went through with your plan and he's like i'm gonna kill you now <laughs> so he's like chasing after her and he's about to like throttle her to death when there's a, a cry from the shore uh and there was one guy who was still out in the water looking for the wife and they found her and they brought her back and he's like oh god <laughs> i was really gonna do something there and it wouldn't have been good and that's when yeah they they are able to like okay like we've reconciled we're both alive we're both very happy to be alive let's go back let's like get our kid that we remember that we have hey sometimes the parents just gotta have a nice day out on the town without the kids you know very true a big part of this movie i think is that too of like <laughs> marriage not going so great have an eye on the town it'll, it'll, it'll be fun chase a drunk pig do chase it. a drunk pig uh what do a dance while a guy uh plays with a woman's dress shoulders what a ridiculous gag and so then the movie ends with them you know living happily in the country and we get this i think very funny shot of the city woman on the back of like a cart like going back to the city and she's like oh i'm mad <laughs> It feels like a very cartoony ending for her right, right there. It's like... it, it does, kind of. Um, and, yeah, this movie has a weird... It does feel very fairy tale like in its logic, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think it's full of things that shouldn't work that somehow I still find myself thinking work. Like, the whole thing of murder to, like, a happy night on the town is, like, how did anyone pull this off? <laughs> I don't understand it. Like it, I really don't think it should work. I think the performances do a lot. Janet Gaynor plays the wife, um, and she won the first ever Best Actress Oscar mm -hmm. for both this movie and two other movies uh, because it was over multiple years. So she got nominated for three movies. It's like you done good. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, I think she's very good in this movie. I think the guy who plays 
the husband. I forget his name because I didn't write it down. But I think he's also very good. And I think they their performance in that whole city section and throughout the whole thing is uh, the thing that I think makes this movie work yeah. when it, it by all means probably shouldn't. Um, and also just like Murnau directs the hell out of it. It looks great. There's some really inventive stuff happening all throughout. And it's got sound effects. It's got sound effects. There's while they're searching the wa- the water at night at the end. Um, there's almost this kind of like foghorn sound as he's calling out. Yeah, that was that was silly. I didn't like that. It's weird. It's it feels like a sort of thing where they're they're trying something and it didn't really work. <laughs> but uh, this movie also won the first ever Oscar for best cinematography, as as well it should. Yes, it should. Speaking of uh, movies that won. Uh, Best Picture Awards at the Oscars. Uh, well, actually, before we move on to the other movie, let's talk about how uh, in the 1929 Oscars, there were two awards for Best Picture. There was yes. Outstanding Picture, which was sort of, my understanding of it is that was to reward uh, sort of quality of production. Mm-hmm. And there was uh, Best Unique or Artistic, Unique and Artistic Picture, which Su- Sunrise won. Right. And retroactively has kind of been shut out of the best picture lists of movies. It didn't exist for that long though, right? Only only the first year. Yeah. Only 29. I feel like people just say like that these two shared best picture the first. They year. usually don't. In in almost every instance, maybe it's changing, but in almost every instance, Wings is given the sole credit for the first best picture winner at the Oscars. And mm-hmm. it's not really true. There were two. And Sunrise is kind of better, I think. But Wings is also pretty good, so let's talk about it. <laughs> uh, you know what? Maybe we're going to contrast in some interesting places here, because I thought Wings is great. Like, I also think Wings is great. I just think I like Sunrise more. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Mostly because of, like, character stuff. Like, I, I buy... I get emotionally invested in the characters in Sunrise a lot more than I do in Wings. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's more... Um, both of these movies very hollywood yeah i think that's the other thing that like really makes them fitting as uh sharing the first oscar right uh, for best picture is because both of these movies are extremely (laughs) it's like they're off to the start already of what the academy awards loves (laughs) yes yeah wings oh it's it's a Hell, um, hell of a picture it's a hell of a picture so it is a movie about world war one fighter pilots uh it starts off in the um in the country when they're both boys these two these two men mm-hmm. who are of course in a love triangle it's a silent movie it has that, more of a love square almost uh yes yeah kind of yeah 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 true um i mean actually, it's like it's, a, it's like a love, a love it's it's a love triangle that then clara bow is sort of like adjacent to yeah it's a love triangle with one line sticking out of it yes <laughs> <laughs> right we we meet one of our two like lead characters or three lead characters i i suppose uh it was jack who is just a, a sweet idiot who dreams of flying he's i i think this character is very dumb like the character conceptually the character isn't dumb but i mean like the way he's characterized, I'm like, this dummy, what is he doing? <laughs> he's uh, he's kind of like uh, getting duped by people at various times. Yeah, but so he, he dreams of flying and he builds, uh, he's very mechanically uh, inclined. So he builds a race car 
with the help of his his neighbor Mary, played by Clara Bow. Clara yeah. Bow, by the way, who was written into this movie after the fact, like she wasn't initially her character didn't exist at first, and then she made the movie It in 1927, which blew up and was super popular and coined the term It Girl. And uh, and then they and then and they were like, we got to get this Clara Bow into more pictures. Put her in that Wings picture. She can play, I don't know, like a, a cute neighbor. <laughs> the girl next door. Uh, yes, literally. Jack, um, oh, what's her name in this movie? It's uh, Mary. Mary. Yeah, so Jack Jack and Mary grew up together in the intertitles. Uh, it seems to say that, like, he regretted saving her from a fire. Like, it hints at this backstory <laughs> that they had. Like, like she's in love with him, but he kind of thinks she's annoying. Uh, he builds this car, and she's about to uh test it out and she's like uh she's like she puts a shooting star on the car uh paint paints it on the side of the car and she says we can call it the shooting star and you know what uh what you can do when you see a shooting star right and he's like no what and uh and then she says you kiss the lady you love and she's and... like great idea i'll drive over to her house right now <laughs> So, so he does that, and she's, like, kind of getting herself ready to go. It's a good kind of comedy moment. Yeah. Uh, and then he drives over to this uh, this other woman's house. Sylvia. Uh, Sylvia, who she, it, it, it says she's advantaged by being the prettiest woman, woman in town, and the, the guy who's with her is advantaged by being the richest boy in town. <laughs> David, the local rich boy. Yes. They're introduced swinging on a swing but the camera is also like mounted on the swing so it's like we see the background like swinging around behind them it's a really cool shot yeah and as as they with each swing it's a it's really good like you were saying like with each swing jack gets closer and closer mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> until you see the car coming behind them. yeah it's 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 very silly you know the two of them are on the swing talking about how much they love each other and then jack runs up behind them and he's like hey lady want to go ride in my car <laughs> uh she's like okay sure and uh yeah she humors him as she does kind of a lot throughout this movie to a point where it's like you gotta stop it but so then uh war were declared and uh both uh jack and david enlist to be fighter pilots um and while they're while they're like enlisting at like the the army center there's a, a german man there in line herman schwimpf 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 Schwimpf. i feel like I, I feel like the wimp in there is probably intentional intentional yeah and they're and the recruiting people are like what you're german get out of here and he's like but 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 and he shows that he has a goofy american flag tattoo on his arm that he like jiggles around like it's waving <laughs> And they're like, all right, you're okay. You have an American flag tattoo. Clearly you're patriotic or whatever. He, it, it starts this like recurring bit through the movie where people think like, hey, you're un-American. He goes, yeah. wait a second. He pulls his yeah. arm. He pulls the <laughs> sleeve off his arm and like it's he's so gonna goofy. about to about to punch you. Uh, and then he, he does it to reveal his American flag, which you can yeah. see like the sticky part of a temporary tattoo yeah, yeah. on the edge of it. Maybe people just didn't know what temporary tattoos were back in the day. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a he's like a comic relief character. I will say we're talking about war were declared is that we were talking about like cool animated title cards and uh one one was in Sunrise where uh when she says drown her like
like the, the oh the, yeah and then the, the, the letters like, fall down like drown like the letters <laughs> melt almost like yeah. they're turning into water yeah that uh, and really... then also i guess i should have mentioned this the second ago but like you she says drown her the letters come back up or come down and then at the end like the the end it comes back up like it rises out of, oh. of the water you know so that was cool but uh yeah. in this uh when when you know something has crept into the lives of these innocent young boys war and it's yeah. a big word that says war and the letters are on fire <laughs> um, it, uh, it, it's great yeah <laughs> yeah 27 great year for like big dramatic intertitles yeah yep um Moloch, so, war yeah. drown her <laughs> Maybe that should be the name of the episode. <laughs> but so before they leave, uh, Sylvia makes a nice little locket with a picture of herself for David. But then Jack shows up to the house and is like, cool locket is for me, right? <laughs> and she's like, ah, sure. Yeah. Fine, Not even. She's like, she's like, like, wait, wait, wait. There's something written on the back of it. Like, she doesn't yeah. say this, but like, like, the, uh, the, uh, and, and right. She, she writes a little love note to David on the back of the picture and puts it in the locket. And Jack just assumes it's for him and takes it. And yeah, and doesn't give her a chance to uh, ask for because, it back. Because he is incapable of reading the room. <laughs> yeah, Which that... also, side note, I think we gotta bring lockets back. No one's giving each other lockets anymore. I feel like that happened in the 90s. I Did remember it? being a kid and like people talking about lockets. Maybe. Uh, I mean, I was, I was maybe too young. But, uh, I don't know. I saw this movie and I was like, oh, lockets? Those are great. <laughs> I want secret lock messages. Yeah. Uh so they so they go off uh to training to train to be fighter pilots and they initially are rivals. They're buttonheads cuz they're they're like seemingly romantic rivals even though you know, it's kind of one-sided. I feel like this also like this part of the movie, this training montage kind of, mm-hmm. not a montage not, exactly. Not really a montage, like a, but like a training segment of the movie yeah. and includes like people spinning around in things like you see in military training montages. Yeah. yeah. This is where I feel like the movie like uh gets its feet and starts I don't know. I, I didn't have high hopes for this movie honestly when I first started mm. it because I thought it was just going to be a kind of generic Hollywood drama that we've like in the, in the style that we've seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think at the beginning, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, but like, that's kind of how it starts. Right. And yeah. then this training sequence feels very, it, it feels very modern. You know, it feels, mm-hmm. it feels like you're watching a movie. Like this is when I went, Oh, this is a Hollywood movie. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it is in line with so many other sequences that probably took a lot of inspiration. These two characters who, you know, find this respect for each other by fighting it out uh, while training. uh, And then just the only way men can become become friends. Seriously. Hitting each other. (laughs) They're doing all this training. There's a part where, so at the end of the training sequence, they kind of get stationed together in their uh, barrack tent as uh as mm-hmm. new buddies um and then they get a, a roommate who is like he's a more experienced pilot and they talk to each other about and they're both like "Ooh, this guy's cool yeah. <laughs> he's like the cool older kid that they get bunked with yeah and he's like 
just take after me kids and you'll be fine he is also by the way played by gary cooper famous actor gary cooper who who we'll we'll see more of shortly yeah he's like eighth build in this movie before david left uh and and also i was against david at the beginning because you know you're kind of supposed to be in a way i think he's kind of meant to be a little pompous and he's Mm -hmm. uh he is the rival to the kind of main main character right uh and I think that, you know, as they become buddies, this um, kind of fleshes out. And before David leaves, uh, his parents give him a, a little tiny teddy bear that he had as a kid. And his mom says to bring it back to her. To her and he carries it around as a good luck charm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're talking about their good luck charms to each other in the tent with their cool older brother there. <laughs> and... So David's like, I have this lucky charm. It's my uh, teddy bear from when I was a kid. And then Jack says, I have a lucky charm, but you can't see it. <laughs> because, because it is um, it, it's it's a, picture, I stole. It's, it's a picture of your girlfriend yeah. that I also love <laughs> that I don't know has your name written on the back. Yeah. So they ask the, they ask the cool pilot, oh, do you carry any lucky trinkets? A lot, he's like, a lot of people do that, but never been my style uh i just think i'm that, too i'm too cool for lucky charms yeah it's just like i think someday you know someday you're gonna go or you're gonna go then uh, that's gonna happen yeah. whatever anyway i'm gonna go do some test flying and then he immediately crashes and dies <laughs> <laughs> yeah thereby sort of setting the stakes being like oh shit like he didn't he wasn't even fighting he was just doing practice yeah. flying yeah, it is. It is serious. It's not jokey, but yeah, and that's the mo- the moment. You know, this movie like starts as this kind of innocent fun, then it becomes this kind of like boys being boys thing, and then like mm-hmm. when the guy they just met just dies, then it starts yeah. getting real. And pretty much right after that, like plane fighting starts. Yeah. A quick thing about that boxing scene from the training earlier: the the sergeant who's teaching them to box was a real boxer named Gunboat Smith. Oh. Which is a great boxing name. Good I just, I just needed to call out old gunboat for a second. <laughs> but yeah, so they after the, the training stuff, they, they go off, you know, to fight the Germans. And we get our first proper, like, dogfight scene with real airplanes flying around. Yeah, it's, it's wild. It's um, crazy. They are going out for this kind of routine, like, inspecting the perimeter. Uh, and they're they're being commanded by a, a much more experienced pilot who didn't just die uh, you know they're asking him like do you think we're gonna see any action you think we're gonna see some uh heinies they call them uh, which i i understand why but every time that comes up in your titles of like another heine i'm just like god damn it why why did they have to call them heinies <laughs> I guess it's I don't know where what where that's from like a similar route to Heineken I suppose yeah yeah and the guy's like I have a feeling we will see some some Germans we are I've got a I've got a rival he's like the who is he called like the it's like the Red Baron basically it's not the Red Baron it's yeah it's like the Blue Falcon it's something else <laughs> off brand Red isn't... Baron exactly yeah um and sure enough like it's their first time flying officially in 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 the field and then they face combat yeah uh and those airplane dogfight scenes are ridiculous yeah because uh, they're just flying real airplanes around and filming it and they're like catching fire not ca- i mean they're 
shooting out smoke and there's some hand painted fire mm-hmm. added in just to make it a little extra dramatic but it's yeah. like they're just doing dog fights in real life pretty much. i mean they're not actually shooting at each other but still it's like the the aerial footage in this movie is crazy like it 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 still looks as impressive as it did then because it's they're just filming real stuff yeah and this is the kind of thing that like would be done with special effects and not have the same like grit that it does here but like this feels intense it feels dangerous because it was (laughs) yeah Yeah, like the hand-painted fire uh the, the pretty much entire movie is has got like a kind of sepia tone on it um, There's a couple like blue scenes to signify night, yeah, and and the like, but it's it's fairly monochromatic. But, but yeah, there's yeah. a couple hand painted flames coming off of the planes that are going down. There's real smoke coming off of them, but the the flames are added in. Yeah, the only colors are like yellow, blue, and fire. <laughs> yeah, when they're shooting their machine guns, they they have more like hand painted like muzzle flashes kind mm-hmm. of. The German planes are called uh, Fokkers, mm-hmm. which is actually what you know the type of German plane. In yeah. World War One, that was lying around, but it is funny in the intertitles when they're like, "There's a bunch of fuckers coming down on our tail," and it's like, <laughs> "It's not supposed to be funny." Yeah, they keep referring to enemy planes as fuckers, and it it made me giggle. So yeah, they have second, their, their second first meet the parents reference in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so they have the, they have their first battle, and uh, I think it's David is a his gun jams, and he's about to get shot by the the blue baron or whatever his name is but he sees that the gun is jammed and he's like i can't shoot this guy down and there's a a title that's like the the knights of the sky have chivalry too <laughs> yes yeah uh so he flies away and lets him live but then they get they get some medals for their their bravery in the battle and meanwhile we see that mary has joined the war effort as an ambulance driver mm-hmm. and almost gets blown up uh when there's a, a bombing raid over the town that she's in yeah and like the there's another kind of plain action sequence they've got these like peppered through the movie i think at very yeah. good intervals mm-hmm. I, like this movie's pretty long but i think the pacing is quite good uh yeah. where it gives you like some kind of drama on the ground and then action in the skies yeah and it, yeah it doesn't it doesn't feel overly long it feels like no this is the it's this is an, a war epic and it feels appropriately yeah long for how much happens so yeah like she's kind of tending to some people in this town which happens to have a bomber plane going right after it and the two of them agatha i think agatha they refer to it as as such jack and david are tasked with going after the bomber and and attacking it once they hear that it is uh is on the on their trail or or headed toward this town Mm -hmm. but not until after uh, you get some amazing explosions as yeah. uh, they drop the bombs on this town. Also some like, I think like real aerial photography uh, mm-hmm. or videography yeah. of like the, the bombs dropping down out of the plane. Yeah. Yeah. Like looking straight down as the bombs fall and you see like the explosion shooting up. So cool. They made sure to hire a director who flew planes in world war one for this movie. Yeah. Uh, uh, William a Wellman who yeah. was a fighter pilot. And yeah, it shows. There's like a lot of yeah, yeah. There's a lot of like gritty reality in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's a it's a violent war movie, uh, and yeah. it has some like sequences with really intense like trench combat and all this stuff. 
it's, yeah it's <laughs> it's super good yeah it, it really goes as hard as a movie from this time can go kind of as a war movie it like, goes they, harder they, than they, any movie that i have ever seen so far they they pulled no stops in terms of how enormous this production was it's bonkers the general last year you could consider to be a proto action movie and this is mm-hmm. an action movie <laughs> right yeah right they, they shoot down the big bomber and it crashes in a really cool way and uh they got have some time off so they decide the boys head to paris another big crazy intertitle where like just the words paris like fly at the screen and uh mary ascend after the boys she hasn't met up with them yet at this point she's sent into paris to bring the pilots back for the next day's attack they just find out they've come down the wire that they need to attack the next day so they need to go out and get all the pilots who are partying on the town in paris and bring them back to the base leave is canceled because we've got the big push yeah so she's asking around people in paris like where where are all the pilots i was like oh i saw those two they were just in a peach of a fight and they busted up this window <laughs> um and so she's sort of looking all throughout them and we sort of we find jack in like a, a paris i don't know if it's really a nightclub but it's a, a saloon yeah. a, a music hall as it were and there's one of the most famous shots in this movie if I'm going to single out any single shot of any movie, like, this is a, a real doozy. <laughs> it's so good that Ryan Johnson used it in Star Wars, which is uh, this super cool, like, it looks like a dolly movie. Like, it's just the camera moving forward in a straight line. But because it's in this, like, Paris cafe musical place, it's moving over a bunch of tables that everyone's sitting at. And we're moving, like, in between these people sitting at tables. Yeah, so, like, various conversations or interactions happening on either and people side are like, of the screen. And people are, like, moving glasses, like, out of the way as the camera, like, goes inches past it. And we finally settle on Jack as he's sitting dead center of the middle of the frame. And he's just getting a giant thing of champagne poured into a glass that he's, like, ogling. It's a great shot. They're, they're I mean... I think two kind of legendary like shots from this from these two movies, Sunrise and and Wings. Mm-hmm. Uh one of the kind of traveling mat from the yeah. from the last one and then this. Uh which yeah. This must have required so much uh coordination to make it happen. Yeah. I mean certainly a lot of coordination in the performances. You can you can even see like people like subtly moving stuff out of the way to the camera, but because at first you're like, how did they even shoot this? Because it's like, normally you shoot it on a dolly track, but the tables are in the way. They might have had to like, oh, yeah, you know, okay. I, I wanted to look it up because I, I had a vague idea. But they um, they had they had to hang the camera on a platform from like a track so it could move over all the tables. Hmm. Um, but it was on this, this platform and it, it was uh, shot with an IMO camera, which was a, a early kind of motorized uh, film camera i actually used the 60 millimeter version in school called the filmo it's fun fact but so it's it's hanging it's like on a platform and it's hanging and the camera operator had to be on the platform with it to to shoot um yeah it looks looks fantastic that's so cool there's actually so this is uh just a great sort of like camera move i guess like it, it does kind of call attention to itself and the director, uh, William Wellman, later said in an interview, uh, 
there's a, a funny quote that I wanted to bring up. Uh, camera movement, I loved. And then I got awfully sick of it. I did the first big boom shot in Wings. It's not technically really a boom, but whatever. Uh, when the camera moves moved across the tables and the big French cafe set. Then everybody got on a boom, and both me and Jack Ford got right off. We both agreed we'd never use the thing again. There's too much movement. It makes some people dizzy. It really does. And they become more <laughs> conscious of the camera movement than they are of what the hell you're photographing. I That's used to fair. get some wonderful odd angles, but then everybody started odd angles, shooting through people's navels. <laughs> uh, wow. To which I say, if only William Wellman could see the movie Ambulance. Um, but I, I find that interesting that it's like he does this really cool shot in this movie and then everyone is like we love camera movement and he's like too much we have camera moving mo- moving all over the place too much People it's are over I did it and then yeah. and then that's it <laughs> William Wellman also made uh, the initial version of Star is Born uh, also oh, starring no Janet Gaynor did not know that no. so anyway uh, Mary shows up to the to the French cafe and finds Jack just totally sloshed he is seeing bubbles everywhere and says, no war, just bubbles. <laughs> uh, there's a great, Clara Bow's face is really great in this scene where like she finds, she sees Drac drunk and doesn't look at camera, but it's just like, you see her like dejected face of like, oh, this dude. Well, and also Damn like, he's, he's like hitting on this French lady and yeah. Na- and her, her, her just lady. like her, her face is so funny to me. It's a really great, uh, performance yeah it's a bit it's a bit more like comedy at, in at this point where but it's not like over overwrought comedy like it's she's not like making a silly face it's just her expression in this moment is so perfect right like she's trying to like there's there's a boy that she loves who is with a french lady and and she's like trying multiple to like french ladies yeah yeah and, and like she's Which trying also to... in that in that crazy like crane shot going across the tables two of uh, one of the tables is is two ladies i think one of them might be like in drag also hmm. he's way too drunk to function and is yeah. hallucinating special effects <laughs> bubbles uh in the air which he's trying to shake everything to make bubbles come out like a champagne bottle and yeah. these bubbles are probably like they're the biggest kind of touch of unreality in this movie uh they're yeah, they're very yeah. kind of like almost cartoony bubbles yeah uh, for sure all this all these hijinks of her trying to like collect him basically yeah mary like meets an old french woman in the bathroom and like she gives her a fancy dress to like get you know try to get jack to notice her because like he won't even look at her while she's in her uniform he's like get out of here get he doesn't here. recognize her yeah yeah he's also just entirely drunk so it's like he can't even see anything besides bubbles but her fancy dress is shiny and so he thinks it's bubbles <laughs> so he follows her and they go up to like to a hotel room and jack almost immediately falls asleep and it's like Bleh, and just zonks out on the on the bed and so mary's like oh, whatever i guess i'll change back to my uniform now and as she's changing the like other military officers bust into the room and are like you you're not allowed to be naked in the room with the with a pilot what's going on here and she's like uh, 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 yeah but she can't convince them that it was innocent and so uh she gets kicked out of the ambulance driving uh core before yeah before he even has a chance to recognize her 
it all feels very unfair to her and Which uh, very sexist toward her. The weird thing about this is that she doesn't then show up until again until the very end of the movie, which maybe is a consequence of her being written into the movie late. Yeah, there's not a lot of her in this movie, and she has top billing because of how famous she is. Right, because she's the It Girl. Uh, she was in It, playing the clown. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Have to make that never, joke. <laughs> gotta make that joke every time it comes up. But so then, a presumably very hungover Jack uh, comes back for the big push. The big battle. It's like World War One D-Day. They basically, like, pulled a real D-Day just to film it. Because, like, it is it is colossal, the the scale of this battle. I mean, this is like the entire third act of the movie, right? Yeah. Or, like, end of second act into third act, whatever. And there's, um, yeah, there's battles happening in the sky that are super crazy. There's battles happening in the ground that are just, yeah. like, so violent with big tanks and explosions. Ugh. It's ridiculous. This is yes. the biggest scale thing ever it's crazy <laughs> it, it it's not really that hyperbolic to say this is like the biggest scale thing filmed maybe i don't know it's it's up there yeah there's been other things that are are also absolutely massive in terms of the scale i, of I think there are other things that have stage been stuff massive but not all of them i think a lot of them kind of get lost in that bigness mm. where this movie i feel like is very well directed it yeah uh it has all of this scale, but it it like plays it properly, and mm-hmm. it it gives you a good pacing with all of it, and it um it like fills the frame in a nice way, and it doesn't drag it drag it out too yeah. much. Like other movies that have had big action sequences, like big battle sequences, uh, they're like, okay, well we got like five hundred people together, so we're gonna get like fifteen minutes of footage out of this, you mm-hmm. know. But this movie, like, knows how to use it so that it, like, has a punch and doesn't overstay its yeah. welcome. So, yeah, during this big, big battle, David is shot down but survives. But Jack thinks he's dead. Yeah, he's so behind Jack goes enemy off, lines. Right. Jack goes off on, like, a rampage in his plane. And he sees, oh, there's a scene I love where he sees a German, like, general or something in a car. Yeah. And, like, chases down the car and shoots it and it crashes and explodes and it's just it's a great just like action movie thing of an airplane chasing a car shooting it and then it like rolls into a ditch and yeah explodes. there's oh man there's so much going on in this movie one one kind of note to tie in like the kind of dramatic story back into this is this thing has been established before every time they get up in the planes oh right yeah david says all set and jack says okay and it's like they're buddies they have a little thing that they do every yeah. time and this final battle, uh, right before it has happened, Jack drops his, like, r- reveals his locket to yeah. David. And the locket comes open, and the picture uh, that has a note written to David on the back of it is, like, falls onto the ground. And David has also received a letter from Sylvia saying... This guy keeps saying he loves me so much, but like <laughs> he keeps like, sending me love letters. I don't like, know what to do. Yeah, <laughs> the one I love is you, David. So David's like, oh my god, like I'm best buddies with this guy. We're war buddies. Uh, yeah, like we and you know Jack is like basically displaying this to him is like, hey, I don't want this to come between us, but 
I love Sylvia too, you know? So when the picture falls off, falls onto the ground, David realizes what is happening, grabs it and tears it up. Won't yeah, he tear, he won't give it back to Jack. And he's like, let me put it in the locket. Like I, I need to put it back in the locket. <laughs> and, then, and Jack's like, no, I think I like only, I want to touch this locket. This is the most important thing to me. And he's like, you got You got to let me be the one to put it back in the locket. I don't want to break your heart, my friend. Right. Yeah. Cause he doesn't want him to see the note on the back. Yeah. Um, and so rather than rather than let this happen he tears the note uh, he tears the photo up uh and jack is furious with him he's like i thought i didn't think i thought you'd be better than this to let this get in the way of Mm -hmm. our friendship uh but he's really trying to protect it he could have just told him but (laughs) yeah whatever uh and, and then they're very suddenly called to battle to this big climactic battle yeah. And not only have they left on this weird foot, but also David has forgotten his lucky charm. Classic, uh, classic mistake. Yeah. But and you know when he leaves that lucky charm behind, it's like, oh, this is not going to end well. And yeah, he's like almost immediately shut down. Oh my god. Speaking of lucky charms, one thing that I forgot to mention about Oswald the Lucky Rabbit five hours ago is that <laughs> there is... Uh, there, one of the best joke in it, I think, is when he the, the lucky rabbit thinks he's going to die, and then he pops his foot off of his leg and then kisses the foot because he's kissing a rabbit's foot for luck. Great oh gag! Oh my god! Great gag! <laughs> I didn't even pick up on that. Um, we'll have to we'll have to cut that out and put it back in the <laughs> one week one reel section. So they are about to do their their thing. David is like, "Hey, can we patch this up? All set?" And Jack is furious. He says. Yeah. He doesn't say anything and they leave on this terrible note uh Um, and then david gets shot down and and jack thinks he's dead he's not but so then so then yeah jack is like oh like i left i left he's dead now and i i i was i left things angry and i'd never get to like tell him how much i care so there there's genuine like great chemistry between the two of them yes so david is shot down behind enemy lines he's got a get back so he steals a german plane just like in top gun maverick so as the battle is finishing as you know like the allies are winning or whatever then at the end of the battle uh david's flying back towards the american lines and jack sees this german plane and he's like oh one more i'm gonna avenge my friend's death one more plane i can shoot i can shoot one more plane down and so not knowing that it is his friend who is still alive, he shoots the plane down and it crashes into yeah. a farmhouse. David's like trying, pleading with him. He's like, can you see me, please, yeah. please? Yeah, it's like, it's me, it's me. But it's like, engines are too loud. And so he's like, one more Heine. And uh, Jack lands to like get the, um, he wants to cut the, the Iron Cross out of the plane. But he goes into the farmhouse and he sees that the pilot was actually David the whole time. <laughs> and he's dying. He's dying on his back <laughs> so i runs over to i have him. a wife she's very beautiful but she's dying <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna get better <laughs> and so they have this you know moment where uh he he rushes over to him and he, he he's holding they're holding each other david is dying uh and they and they kiss on the face and then we cut to a, a, a propeller, and it stops turning. 
and it's like, ah, oh, he's passed on. His propeller has stopped. Have you seen uh, Paprika? Yes. Uh, do you know Do you know the scene in Paprika where there is uh, uh, there's a guy who's like on the edge of death, and there's a bunch of pinwheels outside of where he is, and the pinwheels Ooh. are uh, the pinwheels are spinning really fast uh, at, in the wind, and then it looks like he dies, uh, and the pinwheels uh, all like come to a stop, and like like his eyes are are open he's just like his mouth is hanging open the people cover his eyes uh like they do in movies when somebody dies and then they cover his eyes and then the hand reveals that his eyes are still open he's like i'm still alive and then then it cuts back outside and the pinwheel starts spinning (laughs) oh i'm sorry that's 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 not paprika that's tokyo godfathers oh okay that makes more sense for that (laughs) yeah 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 I, I gotta i gotta rewatch Tokyo godfathers i, I so watch good. it almost every christmas <laughs> I, I i should like it's uh it should be a requisite christmas movie watch but anyway so that's you know tragic end for for david uh jack returns home it's really sad like, it's, it, it is. feels it's yeah. like unjust it's uh it's right like you know it's only he'd known it's you know? true tragedy yeah great great drama so jack returns home at, in a parade um he brings the lucky bear back to david's parents who uh forgive him for killing their son basically they're like it's war we get it yeah uh we we kind of see sylvia just like sitting alone uh because the person that she actually cared about has died and so jack now knowing that sylvia wasn't ever into him uh, yeah he ends up seeing her letter to him as well yeah yeah um i think when he goes back to like get the the lucky the teddy bear in the in the tent so then realizing that the woman that he cares about doesn't like him he's like well who else do i know oh yeah that gal mary who lives next door and so then they go and they see a shooting star and they do the thing again and then they kiss and it's sweet and nice if i don't know i have mixed feelings about this ending i don't know it's like i mean she's a little un- she's underdeveloped uh claire yeah. Bow's character but and their relationship is underdeveloped but i think it's kind of like this ah oh, she was the one that was there all along you know she's the one that i was meant to be with i used up all of my softiness watching sunrise <laughs> I guess. um it is it is sweet speaking of uh clara Bow's character being underdeveloped there's a, another funny quote from here saying wings is a man's picture and i'm just the whipped cream on top of the pie <laughs> oh my god <laughs> That's quite a thing to say. <laughs> that is a thing that only someone would say in the 1920s. <laughs> I'm just the whipped cream on top of the pot. I, th- I think she said it later, but um, still, that's a very 1920s thing to say. This movie is sometimes uh, cited as uh, having cinema's first gay kiss, which is which is not correct in a way. Mm, uh, yeah. But like... Also, Both not correct technically, but also like it's not intended as like a romantic kiss. I don't think, even though it is on the mouth. Yeah, it's like I, I, you could take it that way. I think it's interesting if you take it that way. I think uh, it kind of makes the movie better if you take it that way. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, yeah, you could consider it this like kind of kiss on the mouth of camaraderie, uh, or you could, you know, consider it this like sort of, I don't know. Yeah, bisexual kind of thing, I guess. I mean, 
David also kisses his mother on the mouth, so yeah, maybe it was just less of a less of a romantic connotation. This movie took about nine months to shoot, which is a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it cost especially when people are cranking out three movies a year a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this movie cost in nineteen twenty seven dollars two million, which uh, according to the calculator that I used is about thirty five million now. Mm-hmm. That's about what I read. Yeah. Less than what I thought. A thirty-five million dollar movie is expensive, but it's not like you didn't have to pay for computers. Crazy, I guess. Yeah, the computers are half the cost of all these movies now. There was a lot of uh, uh, hooking up on set. Apparently, the director William Williamson described the set as uh, so. They shot in San Antonio, and he said San Antonio became the Armageddon of a magnificent sexual Donnie Brook, which what? is also a hell of a quote. <laughs> Uh, Magnificent Sexual Brook is also a good episode title. Um, <laughs> uh, he also said... We know that, that our episode titles do well when they have the word sex in them. It's You're not wrong. He also said that all of the elevator girls at the hotel got pregnant where the cast and the crew stayed. Which might... That might not be true. That seems like a joke. But, damn. I think uh, Clara Bow and um, uh, Gary Cooper hooked up at some point, I read. Uh, so good for them. Good for uh, them. I think I, th- I think Clara Bow was either engaged or married at the time. Maybe they both were. Both of them have long histories of just hooking up with co-stars and people. So this was that real uh, Babylon era. I mean, Margot Robbie's character is directly based on Clara Bow. So yeah, mm-hmm. some prints of this movie had sync sound effects and music uh, using the kinegraphone process, which I think was sound on film. As opposed to Vitaphone, which Mm. we'll talk about in a second. And yeah, the most popular version of this movie that exists now is a restoration that had Ben Burtt of Star Wars fame uh, doing the period-appropriate sound effects to go along with the the movie and and the score. And I think um, his sound effects, of course, are amazing. Uh, Give it a little bit of Ben Burtt magic. Yeah, they they feel very... um, yeah very very immersive and deep mm. yeah and this movie premiered in new york city but didn't it didn't go wide like most theaters until 1929 which is kind of crazy but so there's really only one more mo- movie to talk about from this year that we watched yeah and it's a pretty pivotal one speaking of uh sync music and sound effects and maybe other things too i think it's time we bite the bullet and we talk about the jazz singer. The jazz singer. One of the, one of the most famous movies, but not because it's good. <laughs> you know, I like this movie. Yeah, I did not. <laughs> and not for the obvious reason. Yeah, I also didn't like it for that. I didn't like it for that reason. We're going to leave aside the obvious horrible thing about this movie. At least in this very moment, we're going to talk about it. But uh, (laughs) I okay. So this movie was is off. You know, people are like, this is the movie that brought us out of the silent era into the sound era. Um, It or or at least heralded the shift. mm -hmm. It was a big popular sync sound movie that had voices and not just sound effects uh in dialogue yeah dialogue and singing 
in this movie. It wasn't just a, um, it wasn't just a little experimental film that was Mm -hmm. playing at a very particular theater. Um, and it also used a sync sound method that was much more easily rigged onto older projectors, Mm -hmm. uh, because you didn't need like basically a new projector to, to use it. Um, you could just kind of hook a, like a record player, like a turntable onto, uh, onto a projector and then have it mechanically linked to the projector. Um, and that was how they achieved that. That was how Vitaphone worked, which is Mm -hmm. what this used. Uh, so it was much more broadly seen, I think, than these other ones. Um, yeah. And there are so many movies that are like, there are so many, uh, essays or, documentaries or movies about this era that are like the jazz singer like people saw this movie and it inspired them and it changed everything and you know what i i was inspired you get it yeah (laughs) yeah like it seems like cliche or whatever but like i um i saw the scene of him speaking and and singing in Mm -hmm. in the club there are some other parts with like kind of less close-up um yeah. sync sound they, uh, but they're then, they are singing but it's not synchronized to their to the film yeah yeah and it's it's much less like you're seeing a person's mouth move and they're talking yeah. and i saw it and after spending years in the silent yeah. era you know yeah. i was like oh my god like this yeah. is this is it this now, is... it's like that is that is the scene that every film montage uses that every movie about this era uses as like everything's changed we need we need to this sound thing is coming down the pipe like we I gotta know. we gotta re, we gotta rethink everything it and sounds... that scene it it does function that way you it, it is you do watch it especially since most of the rest of the movie's silent anyway mm-hmm. and having watched all these movies over years and yeah, you get to that and it's just like oh yeah they're talking now and singing damn and it's like it there is a there is a real palpable energy to it that is different and exciting and new and like yeah it is bringing you into the film in a way that previously has just not been possible it's it's corny but i felt it you know yeah. like i i think a lot of this project is about us kind of uh being able to reevaluate the way that film history is told mm-hmm. right we can kind of experience things in in uh, a simulated real time so that we can get a sense of how revolutionary something is or is not and i I think for birth of a nation for example that is one that deserves nothing uh (laughs) it's a movie that is not that remarkable and is also horrific uh where this i think like I think it deserves the praise that it gets. I think it feels special. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think that scene is good. I think the rest of the movie around it, <laughs> it's okay. significantly less so. Before we get into the real meat of it, uh, there's two quotes that I pulled up that uh, I think are great, just context for this movie being made. One is from uh, Harry Warner, who's one of the Warner Brothers, who Warner Brothers made this movie. This quote is maybe apocryphal. It, he might not have actually said it, but uh, it's who the hell wants to hear actors talk when he was being pitched, you know, synchronized dialogue. 
Uh, the other is from D.W. Griffith from 1924, which is, We do not now and we never shall want the human voice with our films. Which is weird because I think D.W. Griffith did a did have like a talking portion in one of his movies once. Well, hey, you know, maybe change his mind after 24. But that is the... I guess the world that this movie is coming into is that it's like people aren't just not used to talking in movies. People are actively against it. Or at least at least people in the industry are. They're like, what? No. Gross. That is a, sort of like another part of this era of film that is found out, uh, that, that is talked about and like is part of the story is uh, this kind of resistance. People thinking mm-hmm. that it's like, it's not artful to make a movie with talking right Mm -hmm. it's too it's uh it's too it's too tell don't show uh and yeah it's um which are a lot of people incorrect entirely i mean like i think we've especially in the last few episodes of years we've seen like just some amazing visual storytelling being done and just some really great subtle use of performance and of camera work and editing and all of this stuff just to be like to do all this stuff and to tell really universal kind of classical stories they're like yeah you don't you don't need words for this this works on its own i do like to imagine a a kind of history where the silent era could have gone on for a bit longer so Mm -hmm. that people could because I feel like they were just figuring it out, you know? Right, yeah. Like, they were just like, oh, here's how we make amazing art in silent yeah. films. Uh, not that, like, stuff wasn't being made before, but, like, it was, like people were finding ways to use the medium uh, that could not be done with yeah. the kind of obviousness of speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, because of the technical limitations of recording sound, then we see a real kind of or i think we're going to see a shift in sort of how movies look a bit yeah also one other one other thing is that very shortly after this next year which we may talk about more but as a result of this movie and the change that it brought on a lot of organists and pianists lost their jobs Mm. uh because after this movie came out in 1928 people pretty much only wanted sound movies uh it was they were by far the most demanded thing of studios i mean it definitely wasn't an overnight shift Mm -hmm. i mean i think probably by like the early 30s by and large every major release was uh was a talkie but i mean we have a good couple of years of of silent movies left to to watch they're still straggling but like i think that but it's it's pretty quick it's it's a couple of years and it's done yeah Yeah. i mean a lot of people were like a lot of people in studios were clamoring to like add sync sound to movies that didn't have it uh because it was a good selling point and they were um a lot of the early 1928 movies Mm -hmm. uh had were like the jazz singer where they had uh partial like scenes that had Mm-hmm. sync sound sync dialogue yeah. that kind of thing and then the rest of it was a silent movie but in the next year we have our first all talking picture mm-hmm. and that's the kind of thing that they were like oh like we gotta get yeah. on this basically yeah. i mean as dramatized in 
the movie The Aviator, Howard Hughes was filming Hell's Angels when this movie came out and was like, I think we got to reshoot this whole thing with sound. <laughs> and he did. Uh, yeah. I think there's a lot of silent footage in that movie still. I don't think he reshot everything. But, um, I mean, that that is a, uh, a talkie. So, yeah. this is uh, So this is based on a, a play, oddly a non-musical play, all the songs happen off stage in the play. Oh, weird. <laughs> um, that is partially inspired, or like loosely inspired, based on Al Jolson's real life. Also, weirdly, the play not starring Al Jolson, who stars <laughs> in this movie. Yeah, this uh, weird kind of roundabout situation. Yeah, this movie is directed by Alan Crossland, who directed Don Juan in twenty six, which was. Uh, a a sync sound feature but without dialogue and uh yeah warner brothers was having a lot of success with their other vitaphone shorts and features with you know sync music and mm-hmm. they decided to take, take the plunge they were kind of in a tight spot financially at this point and they were like we gotta we're betting it all on talkies and yeah like you said there's there's relatively little sync sound in this this movie is mostly a silent mm-hmm. And there's a couple scenes with talking and uh, a few more scenes with... It's mostly singing. It's the majority of it. Yeah, yeah. But honestly, the moments in between the singing where there is dialogue is where the magic really happens, I think. Right, because it's almost like the first couple times it's just... It's a silent movie. Someone will sing a song and the song is playing over the scene. And it's like, okay, there's a song on this. Cool. But then it's when the song ends and it transitions to just dialogue where it does feel there's that like fundamental shift mm-hmm. in terms of how you're experiencing the movie yeah yeah and it's and it seems so casual too where uh the the dialogue is just this kind of almost riffing in between songs like it's it's not mm-hmm. it, it i mean it, it literally was riffing it was unscripted <laughs> but it's like that's where the magic is uh mm. yeah i gotta say speaking of those other scenes for a movie that is like the first movie with synchronized dialogue and and mm-hmm. songs and, and that kind of thing, I think that is it is doing something that feels like pretty thoughtful for its time, which is that it has like J cuts and L cuts where it like there mm. are there are parts mm-hmm. where he is uh, singing where you you kind of expect right. We're showing this yeah. new technology. We're going to have the camera locked on him in one shot yeah. for the entire time that he's singing. And it's like that for a while, but then it goes and the audio continues when it yeah. cuts to a reaction shot from the crowd. There's another scene. Or just other things other, happen, like other other parallel action happening that isn't in the same room. Yeah. That is like singing happening over someone else doing a thing. That actually might be my maybe one of my favorite things about the movie is the way it uses yeah that, it's it's really which, fantastic on one hand might be a way for them to kind of cover up sync issues like for the first two songs it's not synchronized with the film at all like it's there you can tell that people are singing and also there is a song happening but it's like they don't line up perfectly mm-hmm. and so they're cutting away a lot but it's still this sort of like this singing is happening over this other scene right. which is something we just haven't seen yeah i mean but with that cutting away it's not even it's like cutting like you were saying it's cutting away to other places in space so the singing and like what that singing means 
is hovering over those other scenes it's almost, in another it's almost place. like it's it's the, ridiculous it's so good the diegetic the diegetic singing is then becoming is then scoring a different scene happening at the same time yeah kind of you see this in modern movies you know somebody's like i don't know there's a there's one character that's in a church and they're singing a, a hymn and then and then yeah. like everyone's watching them and then the their their buddy is uh, executing somebody and it, like but then the music yeah. stays across the whole thing to yep. draw a parallel yeah. and this movie is doing that like the first time yeah. they're doing right because it's the the song is then commenting on whatever we're cutting yeah. away to also yeah oh my god it's so good <laughs> yeah that's true this movie does some some things well i'll give it that <laughs> tell me what but, you hate about uh, it well should we talk about the the obvious one or the less obvious one? Uh, let's start with the less obvious one. The less obvious is that I don't feel like this movie earns its like emotional catharsis at all. Hmm. I did not connect to this movie emotionally on a, like a character storytelling level. Other than like it, it's, it's well-directed. Alan Crossland does a really good job uh, integrating the sound into it. And like I said, the, the editing during the singing stuff fantastic the actual story being told i did not uh connect to and i i thought it was almost actively working against itself hmm. sometimes i guess i did but maybe i was just so won over by the gimmick mm. that that i got all, it got all mushy uh, <laughs> this movie is basically fiddler on the roof <laughs> um it i mean i definitely uh quoted fiddler on the roof in my notes so <laughs> it is about uh a guy who is the the cantor uh in a synagogue in a very orthodox jewish family in new york city uh but he dreams of singing heathen music jazz which i don't think any of the songs in this are actually jazz songs i think they're all just like pop songs from the 20s it's, yeah it's like pop it's like um kind of that like big bandy kind of it's quite it's closer I, I mean like right it's like there's a little bit of ragtime influence a little bit but it's like on the it's not really fully going into what i think of as jazz even jazz from this time period and it's i also found it very unintentionally funny how often people say the phrase jazz singer like <laughs> it's my dream i just want to be a jazz singer and then <laughs> look, it's like you'll never amount to anything you just want to be a jazz singer <laughs> Like, it's used as both this, like, impossible dream that he's chasing and also this, like, pejorative, like, the worst thing you could ever be. A jazz singer. How dare you? smoking jazz cigarettes. <laughs> uh, uh, and so um, his, his father discover, discovers him as a child singing in a in like a club singing ragtime yeah. jazz music raggy times raggy times raggy time songs uh and um, he says and he... this flies in the face of tradition and yeah. <laughs> and i have no son because uh he he beats him with his belt and then the son runs away because he said if you hit me i'm gonna leave which you know is fair yeah um, so he does. And he goes to Los um, Angeles. He is, he, he is disowned, and he, he goes to Los Angeles where he's a jazz singer. A singing jazz singer. Que questionably jazz songs uh, at the club. Eating eggs. 
like a madman. <laughs> and yet, yeah, so during that first part in New York City are those first two non-sync songs. One is him as a mm-hmm. kid singing in a club, but it's all very far away. You can't really see his mouth right. or anything like that. The other one is some like orthodox, like the the the, the people doing the cantor singing in the yeah. synagogue uh, without him while he is. And that's the part that's juxtaposed with him gathering yeah. his things to run away. Um, yeah. yeah. And, Abandoning his old. But then when you uh, flash forward to him as an adult and he's a jazz singer. Um, it's also established that he is right uh in a long line of of cantors right yes. like it is his family legacy kind he of he is he to, is the decanter to sing in a synagogue yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so he's spitting in the face of his legacy and he's spitting in the face of god who gave him this beautiful voice so that he could sing god music uh, and not sing heathen music, basically. <laughs> and he's also, uh, his name was, as a kid, was Jakey Rabinowitz. And he has changed his name to Jack Robin. Uh, which, <laughs> I feel like, you know, this... this What is more American than that? <laughs> this movie, I feel like it's gotta be, like, commenting on, like, how people will, like, un-Jewishify their names to, like make it big in showbiz oh absolutely there's a lot of i mean in ways that are often very unpleasant in this movie ways in which he is sort of like affecting his own identity mm-hmm. in order to pursue showbiz fame but right? it's also like a way of him sort of betraying his heritage which right. is like something yeah. that the movie is kind of complicating it's dial it's in dialogue mm-hmm. with because like I, I think the movie thinks that his parents are being too strict, uh, but it also, maybe the movie thinks that he shouldn't have thrown the baby out with the bathwater and keep some of his Jewish identity. Hmm. So this is this is the famous scene. He's in the nightclub. That he goes up to sing, and he sings, he sings a song, and immediately following it, he says, in words that you can hear with your ears, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you. You ain't heard nothing. Ugh. Oh, no, you ain't heard nothing yet, right? I messed it up. I actually don't remember if he says seen or heard. He should say heard. It'd be funny if he says seen. I think it's seen. It's like, we've seen a lot, Al. You ain't ain't heard nothing yet. Yeah. Yeah. That makes more sense. Super famous line of dialogue. I mean, the first line of dialogue in a feature film. Yep. <laughs> So, yeah. This is also, the like, you could, I mean, you could very well say that this is the first musical movie as well. Yeah, true. Because um, it is it is a musical. I mean, it's all sort of diegetic music. Like, it's all people going to a place and singing. There's no of the kind of magical realism. But um, that still yeah. counts. And I, I hadn't seen, I hadn't heard nothing yet. I was, I had stars in my eyes, baby. <laughs> I mean, this line of dialogue is what every movie about this era whether it be documentary or like fictional narrative thing everyone uses just that clip of him saying that as like <laughs> god damn it there's sound and pictures now i'm out of a job <laughs> yeah and then after his second song there is uh, a long applause break where everyone's applauding and banging on tables and it goes on like a little bit too long <laughs> to the point where i'm like do they want us to be impressed that we can hear the applause 
That's what it felt Probably. like to me. Yeah. It reminded me of the thing that I hate that Marvel movies do now where they hold for applause after <laughs> people show up. And actors have to be like, why am I pausing here? And they're like, because the audience will like it when they, they see They should just it. add it's in like, a laugh track to Marvel movies. They're not far off. I remember in older Marvel movies where I used to miss dialogue because people were like freaking out over stuff. And I actually miss that. I miss going back to them multiple times to like the first Avengers movie. I saw like three or four times in theaters and like I caught, I caught new stuff every time. You can't stop that weed and quippiness. It can't be stopped. But, uh, people will try though. Um, and they have, (laughs) anyway, I don't want, I like Marvel movies. I don't want to go off on a tirade about them. I just think it's weird for any movie to be like, hold for applause. People are going to love this. And it's like, all right, calm down. <laughs> uh, it is weird to go back Tinder titles after yeah, yeah, dialogue. Yeah, it does feel really like weird. Once, it, once this scene is done and it's like, oh my God, this is this is something to, to hear and to see. And then it goes back to just like, then he's talking to people at the club and it's just all intertitles. And I'm like, hang on. <laughs> we, were, we just heard him. How come we can't hear him anymore? I think this movie... You know what would have put this movie over the edge? And I, even with all the ugly bullshit. I was going to say, the thing that would have put the I'm, movie over the edge is no blackface. But yeah. Well, yeah, that would that would significantly improve it in my eyes, for sure. Um, but if it, if it had been a silent movie up until that scene, and then it was synced dialogue the rest of the time, I mean, come on. That would, that, that would have been really cool. That would have been maybe. I mean, I'm not. I'm not here to super criticize this because I think like, like Wizard of Oz style, yeah, like oh, it yeah, goes yeah. from silent to sound. That would have been cool. I mean, or if uh, the whole movie was silent, but then he had a dream, and the dream was sound. <laughs> <laughs> that's if uh, if George Melies had made this movie, it would be. That. I mean, it, that uh, that's that's the artist, which we'll talk about. Um, Oh, okay. Which we'll talk about at the wrap-up episode. Uh, The artist does not have any footage from this movie in it, does it? I don't remember. It's like the only movie about the 20s that doesn't just like, and now a scene from the Yeah, I haven't seen the artist in like 10 years. So, uh, Al, or Jack, Robin, I'm just going to call him Al. Jakey Rabinowitz. Jack was a character in the last movie. I can't call him Jack. I call him Jakey. Call him Jakey. So Jakey uh, gets a job. He meets a lady at the nightclub um, and goes goes uh, goes back to New York for a, a Broadway show that he's that he's in. He's been he's made it big. He's been trying to make it big. Yeah. And there was a there was a producer in the club when he spoke for the yeah. first time. One of them produces. Uh, and so he, he shows up to his brand spanking new Broadway show. Um, and there's, I think, a very funny scene of like the the chorus girls are like talking behind his back being like, he doesn't have any chance with this with this gal. Like, no way. <laughs> they don't really develop um, that, I guess. They're just like... Yeah. I know, that went nowhere. <laughs> which, another another knock against this movie. One of those chorus girls is played by uh, Myrna Loy, who is gonna get famous later on. We'll talk about her more. He returns to his old, his old home. Uh, his papa has a gray beard now, which is how you can tell that he is old. That that time has passed, uh, but see, he returns home and he he uh, he talks to his mother and plays her a song, and yeah, that's another part. Um, I feel like an- the other kind of big scene, talking yeah, scene, where yeah. he is talking. This is to the most her. dialogue in the movie. I think it's this. Yeah, scene. he's he's talking to her while he's playing the piano to her. Uh, 
it's just like old times she's loving it the dad's not home to ruin everything yet so and she's like i haven't seen my son in 15 years uh yeah so he's speaking to her and like having actual speaking to her ah and because it's like improvised riffing it's very like back and forth bantery which stuff. feels even better honestly it's like it, yeah. yeah because it feels naturalistic uh which mm-hmm. yeah gives it this like you know you'd expect it to be this mid-atlantic accent kind of like i'm performing kind of thing right and it's what you got a problem against mid-atlantic accents now <laughs> then i have a real problem on this show i got a real problem on this show let me tell you i got a real problem in the show see but yeah it, it's like we're just bursting into reality with sound yeah which is great yeah except for the obvious glaring issue of them using only one highly directional microphone so <laughs> so he sounds good but the 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 mom is speaking at like normal volume but it's just a whisper <laughs> yeah hey problem with early sound is it's like very hard to record dialogue properly mm-hmm. they hadn't figured it out yet uh yeah he sees that they they took down his spooky portrait um of him as a child and replaced it with a painting and he's like what happened to my picture and the mother is like mm, took it down and then yeah the 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 papa returns home and immediately says stop and all the dialogue cuts out which is actually kind of That's good a, a neat yeah. little trick this this footloose ass dad over here <laughs> yeah I, another thing i noticed is that the the frame rate is noticeably a little slower in the silent scenes so like mm. they look like they're moving more quickly because it's uh probably a lower frame rate it's, i think the sound scenes are 24 frames i'm guessing the rest of the movie is probably closer to like 18 that's interesting i mean i thought that the soundtrack would have been uh on the the vitaphone as well i don't know i i definitely noticed a distinct difference in the silent scenes in terms of just movement interesting i shouldn't move around while i'm talking it's gonna get yeah you're gonna sound like the old lady i am but so his his dad is still mad at him he's like you've dishonored your family by seeing jazz in a in a theater and jakey is like it is as honorable to sing in a theater as is as a synagogue like i like it is as valuable a thing yeah to do what i'm doing as to what you're you're doing and what you want me he's to basically do. like god gave me a great voice so i'm serving god by like giving it to people which here i mean i don't know i might as well talk about it now there i bump up against the like thematic point of this movie which is this sort of like how much do you follow like your your family's legacy and like their hopes and dreams for you how much do you like you know create your own path and like pursue your own ideals and and life ambitions and all this stuff and i don't i just feel like this movie is like on one hand his parents or his dad like disowns him entirely it's like you're going off and you're singing in in clubs i have no son i will not acknowledge you i'm gonna throw out your creepy portrait (laughs) i won't talk to you Mm -hmm. all of it and he's like i just want to sing dad and it's like i think the movie wants us to take jakey's thing of like no like he wants to pursue his dreams like this is all about but it undercuts it so much by making his dream be i want to do minstrel shows dad (laughs) this is this is what my life has led up okay well i mean to be fair like he wants to sing 
sing, and the specific show that he is in on Broadway is a minstrel show. Uh, but it's like all of the portrayals of like what his dreams of stardom mm-hmm. are are awful, and like not just the minstrel show stuff, just yeah. like the people don't treat him well. It's like it's showbiz. I know, but it it doesn't like commit to it. I don't know. I yeah. At a certain point near the end of this movie, I'm like, what is this movie trying to say? Because it is breaking my brain a little. Bit. I mean, it's a little confused. I mean, you know, the movie exists in a reality, uh, in their own internal reality, where blackface is not on its face horrific, <laughs> right? Um, it exists in a parallel universe. <laughs> Where it's not awful. One other movie that we watched for this podcast that we're not talking about because this is already going to be our longest episode is uh, is College, which had another uh, Buster Keaton, uh, which had another blackface mm-hmm. scene, which acknowledges the fact that blackface is horrible on its right. face because yeah. he does it, and then when the black people around him find out, they uh, start chasing him uh, with knives. Yeah, uh, it's still a bad scene, and it shouldn't have been in the movie, but. Um yeah no Uh, it's it's this the jazz singer's whole thing of sort of like it's sort of showbiz story i feel like is very either confused or just not really well told yeah i mean it's 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 about a character who doesn't know what he wants right it's about a character who is of two minds of two worlds yeah but i feel like it doesn't it doesn't make that into compelling drama, that aspect of it, anyway. Yeah, uh, that's fair. I don't know. It works And maybe for it's me, the fact but... that Al Jolson isn't really an actor. He's a singer. Mm-hmm. And so when he's just, like, riffing on the piano, it's like, okay, yeah, this is this is fun. He is a singer, by the way. But when, yeah. when he... Oh, go ahead. But when he's asked to, like, do a, a, like, a dramatic scene where he has to, like, choose between his dying father and his dress rehearsal... <laughs> Which is sort of like, dude, go to your dying father. It's the dress rehearsal. It's fine. They said, this is as important as the real thing. Yeah. Well, that, that if might be If you don't go to the, the movie... dress rehearsal, you'll never be respected yeah. in this town again. <laughs> that is That might be where the movie completely lost me. Where I was like, this is horseshit. <laughs> well, yeah. And then uh, he ends up choosing his dad. It's this big... Well, after the dress rehearsal, he does. Right, right. So there's there's basically two scenes where he's asked to choose between his dying father and singing at the synagogue and doing this big Broadway show. And there's the dress rehearsal and there's the show at the, in the evening. And during the dress rehearsal, the less important one, he picks the, the showbiz mm-hmm. side. And then after that's all done, right. he's like, all right, I guess I can go visit my dying father now. And the dying father is like, I love you, boy. And it's like a dramatic scene. And he he uh, he gets validation from his dad because he came to visit him. And then he chooses to go sing at the synagogue the night of the actual performance right. of the Broadway so show. So he, he, he dips out of the Broadway performance to, yeah, do the thing that his yeah. father wished and to be... Um, yeah, to be in, in tune with his, or, you know, commune with his dad before he dies. And, yeah. yeah, there is this stake set up of, like, if you choose this, you'll never work in this town again. And he says, I must choose family. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I guess but then it's fine. Yeah, I guess what you're saying is then that it, it completely there's, undercuts there's no, that by saying like, right? Yeah, people got over it. It was fine because he's so good. <laughs> right? He sacrifices nothing by going to the dress rehearsal. He sacrifices nothing by going to the synagogue. Haven't they read the book on screenwriting? In both cases, the least interesting thing happens dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Eh. You're right. You are right. <laughs> uh, what else happens? Well, and then he does a whole blackface routine. He, d- he does several blackface routines more than once. I'm going to say that the blackface routines are the worst part of the movie. Yes, for sure. I, I Like, <laughs> by a lot. I'm going to stake my claim Hot there. Take. The the showbiz girlfriend goes kind of crazy towards the end, and she's like, "This is your life, this is all you have," and it's like, "Do you put your career above me?" <laughs> yeah, and then he's like, "I guess I do, kind of," and she's like, "Good, respect." <laughs> yeah, you need to want it. She gets really fanatical at the end in a kind of strange way. Right as he's about to go sing at the synagogue at the end, his mom says, "If you don't sing with God in your heart, Papa will know." It's like, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> papa will know. Um, and then, yeah, the, the Papa says, uh, after he sings uh, his his traditional music again, uh, he goes, we have our son again, and then immediately dies. So at least, you know, they... They, they, they wrap that up right there, yeah. And then the movie ends with an, a nice, big, you know, blackface number, and the mom cries. She's like, that's my son up there. Yeah, that's my exactly. that's my wonderful booby doing blackface. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I didn't like this movie. I I agree it does some things very well, and I think that initial that famous scene that always gets put in everything is is a great introduction to dialogue in movies or to sound in movies. Like yeah. as a sort of just like this is the first time people ever saw this in this context people had seen casey fat or whatever before but it's it's not the same and yeah pe- audiences at the premiere they premiered on october 6th 1927 in new york city and uh yeah people people went nuts journalists rushed out to the phones and were like everything's different now <laughs> you ain't heard nothing yet yeah the critical response was i guess a bit more muted like people at the premiere were like this is great critics were a little softer on it um, or a little harsher on it, I should say. Uh, Robert Sherwood, who is the critic for Life, and who is like a big Buster Keaton supporter, uh, his quote is, I, for one, suddenly realized that the end of the silent drama is in sight, which is prophetic and accurate. He was like, yep, this is this is it. This is going to change I mean, everything. Th- this shook up the industry. And it like made oh, yeah, people, sure. a lot of people feel un- unstable, certainly. I mean, that is not necessarily a positive or negative about the movie the other quotes that i found are funnier and kind of more negative uh one described it as scarcely a motion picture it should be more properly labeled as an enlarged vitaphone record of al jolson in half a dozen songs i think that's overstating it a little and i think as the la times had a wonderfully backhanded headline jazz singer scores a hit vitaphone and al jolson responsible Picture itself, second rate. <laughs> Which is kind of how I feel about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it's a fundamental shift in the industry. It changed everything forever. The movie it's itself fine. isn't very good. I don't know. We've seen worse, you it's, know? It's wildly offensive. Yes. 
and it also is dramatically kind of uh inert i think yeah fair i think i think i dug the drama and i was like for most of the movie i was like huh i thought there's blackface in this but uh we're just we're just having a good old time right now <laughs> oh it, oh you'll get to it <laughs> and then, oh it's there and then yeah that that just happens but i i think that the parts that aren't blackface are good <laughs> and uh this this movie you know i think that there was a moment there was a moment in this movie where i legitimately thought that he was going to leave the backstage of the show and go to the synagogue in blackface and sing <laughs> sing traditional orthodox jewish songs in a synagogue in full blackface and i was like is that where this movie is going oh man and i'm almost a little disappointed that the movie doesn't do that because then at least it would be interesting he really does a whole like send in the clowns thing while he's putting blackface on you know right he's like he's like a racist clown um that i also wrote down which i guess is what uh blackface is is uh being a racist clown racist clownery yeah Yeah. i mean i think another thing this movie kind of speaks to some big things even if it is a slight movie in, Mm -hmm. in terms of just the you know meat of what's on the script because I feel like another assumption that I had before we started this project was Mm -hmm. that a lot of these movies were going to be wildly racist, right? And on the whole... And they're only only a little racist. (laughs) I don't know. Like, I'm kind of surprised at how little racism on the whole I see in these movies. Uh, Maybe it's the fact that we're, we're picking the cream of the crop in most cases. I also think it it's usually a uh, a thing of it's either nothing, it's either fine or it's very racist. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's not a lot of like sprinkled in between. Some of the Buster Keaton stuff is that way where it's like there'll be one joke in a movie where you're just like, "Mm, Buster, not a great look." He was he was for the most part it, for the most part it's it's like, you know, like love letters to the Confederacy or just movies that are fine <laughs> yeah but like you know 95 percent of the movies are fine yes and yeah. the, I, I was completely shocked by that and I, and so looking at this movie it seems like a bit of an aberration as well because not a lot of movies are doing this just casual blackface not a lot of movies mm. are not just casually but kind of holding it up as like this like pinnacle of performance almost yeah it's, it's treated as this like very uh it is weird that it just doesn't comment it on on it at all it does. I mean, it it does seem like this movie is is at least using it to kind of like it is kind of a a central part of like the narrative and the like the themes of it. Of he is like covering up his own face and his own yeah, that's like, true. You know, his own uh like family, his own you know historical back. You know, he's like he's pretending to be something else. Yeah. In the most, you know, insulting, awful way possible. It, I, I do think it at least plays a role in the narrative, mm-hmm. which isn't an excuse for it. But it, it's like, well, someone had it. It, it at least is trying to make a point with yeah. it, I think. And, um, I mean... Even if I also think it, it really kind of undermines a lot of the points this movie's making for me. Because it's like, no, go be with your dying dad. Don't do a minstrel show. So, I guess... so. Because this story was initially inspired by Al Jolson's story in the first place, Al Jolson mm-hmm. did do, like, his main shtick was blackface. Yeah, that was, like, his whole deal. Uh, yeah, 
this was like what he was very famous for. He did do other things, but like like his routines where he sang the song that he sings at the end, which is called Mammy, he would sing that in vaudeville stages and that kind of thing. He was very popular for that reason. It is unclear to me uh, the Al Jolson, and I need to do more research on this to speak like really mm. confidently on it, but Al Jolson had some instances where he would stick his neck out for uh, black colleagues. Um, and, you know, what he was doing was this thing that Elvis did, for example, where he took black music and made it palatable mm-hmm. to a white audience by having a white... He's white? What? I haven't, se- I haven't seen the movie, but there's the scene in the Elvis, the Boslow and Elvis movie <laughs> where Tom Hanks is like, what? <laughs> and he made it palatable to white audiences by being a white person singing it or doing it in blackface and then brought popularity to this music, which, of course, you know, there are issues of, uh, of appropriation which yeah like the the musical genre of jazz for instance uh, right yeah but like i think that there is a way that at the time and maybe other and maybe other people at the time maybe uh black people at the time although i will not speak for them like could have seen it as like him doing his best to honor them right it, within the capacity of what was available at the time blackface is probably not necessary but uh al might have seen it that way i don't know yeah yeah, i don't know i mean there are some anecdotes about him like i was saying like boosting up and putting his career at risk for the sake Mm -hmm. of black people around him when a lot of other people might not have done that but i'm not really prepared to speak on how good of a guy he was you know uh it could be complicated you know blackface was never okay but like i think that it was not in the popular understanding. It was not as cut and dry as it is now, uh, or yeah. or even was forty years ago when they made um, a remake of the Jazz Singer in nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty. With ne- and what do you think they kept? <laughs> what elements did they think? You know what? Let's not cut this out. The, you know, not only did they keep it, but they jumped right into it. I watched the first 10 minutes of the 1980 jazz singer and seven minutes in blackface. Are you kidding they're me? They're like, hey, 1980. <laughs> they're like, hey, audiences want that, that, you know, that jazz singer magic. Yeah. The the thing that we remember about the jazz singer is it's rid- horrific racism. <laughs> That's what we all love about the jazz singer. <laughs> yeah. A sort of ironic thing about this movie is that most theaters could only play it silently. So this movie played a bunch of theaters without sound. It was also deemed ineligible for the first uh, Oscars in terms of like winning uh, one of the two Best Picture awards. Uh, so it won a special technical award for itself. It got a like, all right. Most sound. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, it got like a special sort of like, you did this thing that no one's done before. Mm-hmm. We're going to give you an award. Don't worry about it. But we can't we can't judge you on the same level as this other stuff. I think that kind of stuck out to me about it uh, that I have failed to mention so far is that this this movie feels kind of almost like the blueprint for like the musician biopic. Yeah. In terms of oh wow, like, yeah. Dad, I just want to sing. Why don't? And then it's like <laughs> the dad is dying, and it's like, 
I I do love you, son. Like wow, you're so right. Like that <laughs> that thing is like is still like movies came out in the last like few years that have that exact plot structure. You yeah. Know? Seemingly, that is maybe where that came from. It's a musician biopic with fiddler on the roof coding on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is uh, this is the beginning of the end for Silent. Film. I know. We've seen it. We've been we've been I've doing this for so long, and the end is beginning. Yeah. yeah, but you know we still got some some great silent movies to watch, mm-hmm. and soon enough we got we're gonna have some some great talkies to watch too. Yeah, so. some pre-code racy talkie movies, right? <laughs> Starting what twenty nine thirty. That's like the rough start for the pre-code era, which is sound movies, but before the Hayes Code was fully enforced. Well, uh, I guess that's it. We have recorded what is surely our longest episode ever. We needed the longest episode to talk about the last racist movie. Uh, our, our, <laughs> uh, we probably, we probably Birth of a Nation in 1915. Uh, now this is definitely our longest episode, but this is maybe the biggest year in silent movies. We were thinking about doing yeah, a double, yeah. uh, a two-parter. Uh, but we're not going to Mission Impossible you. We're not going to Spider-Verse you. No no double features. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we just crammed it into one big long episode and then had to make some uh, merciless cuts to a bunch of other movies that look good. Yeah, we, we decided not to watch the five hour long Napoleon movie. I want to. I want to too, but it was it was too much. One day. One day. We will watch that with you. Yeah. But yeah, be sure to tune in. Tune in. Click the, your Spotify link and listen to our next episode Click or when tap. it comes out. <laughs> Click or tap on your mouse or screen to Use subscribe. the dial on your radio box to subscribe. <laughs> Please rate, review, and subscribe on your wireless radio. Indeed. And yeah, uh, follow us on Instagram stuff. Uh, uh, we got we to gotta wrap this up, man. We've been going for yep. so long. It's true. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Oh, wait, wait. What? Favorite movie. 1927. Oh, yes. Why do I always forget this? We always forget. You know what? Wings. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I've said it enough already. It was uh, uh, Sunrise. It's always been Sunrise. A song of two humans. I'm very shocked um, that I didn't pick Metropolis, but... Um, you know, yeah, it's like, it's right up there yeah. with those. Like, Metropolis is great, um, but... So, yeah, something Sunrise about Wings just had just swept me up. Yeah, it. Wings is great. Yeah. Cool. Uh, those are our favorite movies. What was your favorite movie? Leave a comment. <laughs> <laughs> That's that engagement. That's the, our engagement of uh, 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 for this podcast is telling people to leave a comment uh, over three and a half hours into it. Yes. There you go. If you made it this, if you've made it this far, leave a comment, please. If you've made it this far, leave a comment that says I've made it this far. <laughs> 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 okay. Uh, that's it. Thanks for listening. Glenn, I'll see you next year. See you next year.